What's up, everyone? Thanks for listening to the R4 Podcast, a podcast about reading, running, relationships, and reinvesting in the community. These are four little tools that I use to pretty much make me a better, happier person. Four tools that I share with you guys because really anybody can do it. Anybody can pick up a book. Anybody can go for a walk or a run, do some calisthenics, go to the gym. Uh, anybody can just work on themselves, right? So that way they can become the, the best version of themselves to help other people, whether it be, you know, being there for your kid, being there for your spouse, your parents, whatever loved ones, your extended family, your extended friends, just being a good person, networking, building relationships, right? And then that just rolls into reinvesting in the community, which again, it, this goes beyond your inner circle. This is helping people in the community and there's different ways you can do it. Um, honored and I really appreciate these different people that are coming on to the podcast to share how they're giving back to the community. Um, very exciting stories. Now, Rooney recap. Let's run through that real quick and I'm going to keep it short because it's only been like a week since the last podcast. So over the last week, put in my resignation with my employer. Long story short, um, I'm not going to settle for the position that I was in. Did two years as property adjuster and insurance. Um, long story short, it's not for me. Okay. And I found a company who really wanted to bring me on. They spent four to six weeks trying to figure out how to bring me on. And I really appreciate it. And I hope there's more I can share about this in the future. Other than that, my youngest had a birthday party. He turned four. All right. So cake, ice cream, toys. He partied hard. We got home shortly after 5 p.m. He's got his toys out in the living room. He's playing with them. And I look over, right, and suddenly he is sleeping on the floor in the living room. He partied hard, crashed out even harder. And, you know, if you made it to the birthday party, if you're listening to this, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, and I genuinely mean that. I'm not trying to gloss over it. Like, I really appreciate it. So without further ado... The person that I'm bringing on, I could probably do an introduction just as long as the podcast, you know, all the, all the stuff I've heard about him, um, the crazy stories that he shares, the motivational stories that he shares, um, and the very honest, uh, unfiltered stories and recollections of things that he shares. So some of the things that we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about September 11th right? Which is where this podcast is going to end up. Um, it'll be a September 11th kind of dedication memorial, uh, you know, again, sharing his account as a New York city police officer, um, being down there at ground zero. I'm not going to spoil it. It's in the podcast, you know, and he's going to also talk about a whole lot of service and sacrifice overseas. Um, Tommy, he would never say it, he, he, what he would say, right, he would say, I'm forever in debt to this country because it's given him so much. He's a family from immigrants, um, and he will share some of this stuff in the podcast. Now, me, to put in my words, I'm like, Tommy, these are the things that movies get made into. These are the things that books are written about, okay? For me, one of the military movies that was really popular when I was a kid was Black Hawk Down. 
Tommy was in Mogadishu, Somalia, um, assisting with that mission. He's going to talk about it. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for him to talk about that along with other tours overseas and uh, some policing things. With the policing, the, the thing I really was intrigued about the most was comparing 1990s policing to modern day policing. Um, the stark difference on funding, on training, um, and just uh, community policing in general. He's got some wild stories, and this is just scratching the surface on all of the uh, stuff he has going on. Round Canopy Parachute Team, go check them out on Facebook. It's, a part of, it's an organization that he's a part of, um, jumping out of airplanes, right? I wouldn't expect anything less from Tommy O'Hare. So without any further ado, let's just get into the podcast. Check him out. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the R4 podcast. I have another special guest here with me today. Um, actually had the honor of serving with this gentleman. Met him overseas. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that briefly. You know, the wildest things. If you would have told me five years ago, you'd be doing a podcast with somebody you met in northern Syria or 10 years ago. Let's go even before I was over there to meet this guy. Uh I would have thought someone was blowing smoke up my ass. I would never would have believed in a million years. So feeling super blessed and uh, thanks Tommy for coming in and, you know, accepting my invitation. So master Sergeant retired now, Tommy O'Hare. Thank you. Gavin, it's a great honor. Great, great well, meeting back up with you again. Good, good times in the past. Definitely good times in the past. You know, the, uh, like we were talking about a minute ago before we started really recording here, like social media has been a blessing because I'm able to, and you too, and everybody else that's on social, right? Like we're able to still connect with these people that we serve with overseas or maybe with a previous company, like an employer or something like that. We're all able to keep in touch and, you know, like you're one person that comes across my feed where every time I see something, I'm like, he's, he's doing something else. Like you, <laughs> you stay busier than anybody I know and you're retired. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Right. Well, again, it's remember social media it can, can be manipulated. So don't, don't believe the hype. It may look cool on social media, but um, that's fair. You, know, well, um, you know what, know what you can't fake <laughs> on social media is jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> that, that's true. That is, that is a, a hard and true fact that is true <laughs> so so we'll circle around to that because i i do want to talk about round canopy and, and some stuff like that because i know you really enjoy it but before uh before tommy was in the army and, and jumping out of airplanes what was he doing so uh you know tommy tommy joined the army back in 1988 actually uh joined the national guard you know did four year did two years in the national guard then decided to go active for four years and then um, uh, once I ATS, I swore I was never going back in the military again. I'd done my four years. I was good. Uh, you know, got deployed to Desert Storm in Somalia. I got my, my deployments out of the way. And then I was, uh, dead set on becoming a police officer, uh, somewhere in the Northeast. I, I tried New Jersey first cause the pay was much better, uh, but tougher to get in and eventually got hired by the, uh, New York city police department in 1996. Rock on. So just to establish a timeline. <laughs> And I'm not, I'm not bashing anybody's age, 
I'd never do that. <laughs> Yo, please do. I, I was born in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was 19 years old in basic training. Uh, but that's okay. You know, I, I will never I will never complain about hey, growing old. <laughs> you I I can assure you there's plenty of 19 year olds that are joining right now that I promise you could smoke in just about it. <laughs> no. And I, I don't mean to put anybody down. That is just a hard fact. I'm old and broken now. <laughs> kid, those, those 19 year olds, they're getting tougher and younger every year. Oh, yeah, there, there's, plenty of, there's plenty of good ones. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so joined, uh, joined in 88, did four years in the guard. Um, did you go to Desert Storm and Somalia in the guard? No, I am. Um, so, uh, I was in the National Guard. I my, my my career goal was to go to West Point or get an ROTC scholarship, become an officer, and go that route. Uh, it just so happened that uh, my dad took ill when I was in college. My first, actually, my senior year in high school, uh, you know, he, he took took ill with cancer. Um, and at nineteen, he passed away. And then at that point, you know, my, my life kind of took a change. You know, at at that point, I you know, I I've, I could have got really angry, and you know, you just lost your dad. You're nineteen. You know, I just had to get out of the element I was in. Um, I just, so I, I made that rash decision. I'm like, you know what? I'm going in the army. Just let me go to the army, get that out of my system. So I did that. Yeah, I walked down the recruiter. It was the easiest recruit he ever had. I'm like, I want to be in the infantry. Sign me up. Ship me as fast as possible. He's like, this, this is my made his day. So uh, yeah, so I went, uh, I went active duty and then was with the first armored division over in Germany. Then we got deployed to Desert Storm um then came back from from that got you know got shipped uh ets to, i mean and pcs to, to to georgia and then when um when the blackhawks went down my unit was on actually rdf1 that day we, we took over deploy rapid deployment that day we got the phone call and within 48 hours i was on a a, a galaxy c5 heading to somalia um you know to to take care of stuff there so and then ETS literally ETS from Somalia. Like I I ETS in, in April of ninety-four. I was in a in a in a hide site in Somalia in like mid-March when uh, <laughs> when I'm like, hey, 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 LT, I gotta get back home. I'm I'm getting out of the army here pretty soon. So uh, and, you know, and and what happened over there in Somalia? Now you you again, this is pre tech technology in terms of like internet social media and things like that so yeah. you guys get, you guys get the call you get on a bird you're heading over um was the news really focused on what was going on because we we know how it pans out later there's movies made about it right yeah and and there was there was it was slower but there was news coming in that that an incident happened um we had, we had gotten a call that a, a, a black had been shot down and that the rangers were in a firefight and that, you know, the president had authorized, you know, armor and equipment to get over there quickly. So and that was for the extraction, I imagine. Well, yeah, just and to, to bulk up their support because at that point they didn't know what was going on. Right. They had um, what we later found out was they had limited armor support or vehicles on the ground. The Pakistanis and the Malaysians had some light vehicles there, which helped extract some of the Rangers and 10 Mountain Division. Uh, but, you know, those guys were rolling around. I guess it was pre you know, pre-op armored. They're rolling around in, in light-skinned Humvees, you know, on foot um, with, with limited support and, and, and really taking it, taking it to the, to the Somalis there. And so we went over there. Um, I was part of a, a Bradley unit 
but at that time I'd also graduated sniper school. So, uh, and knowing, and knowing the type of environment that Mogadishu was a, a you know, city and whatnot, I grabbed all my gear and, and I told the LT, it's like, Hey, hey ALT, this is a good, this is a good mission for, you know, people to, to just watch streets and, and, and sniper missions. So he said, yeah, come on, you bring all this stuff with us. You, you'll be doing that. So I was fortunate enough to, to kind of, you know, set my own team up and begin to, to do that mission over there because of just the selectivity of, of the mission. You're in an urban environment, you know, selective, you know, selective shots had to be taken at certain times. So uh, we went there and um, acted as a rapid response force for the Rangers or other special operations that were out in the field in case they got pinned down again, they would launch a, uh, you know, a, a ground, you know, a hatchet team, you know, a, a ground recovery team to help support them. So, uh, but yeah, it was, we, we were getting information just like you guys were back here, you know, through time magazine, through, through talking to people. Uh, you know, uh, I remember the, the picture of the, the pilot being dragged to the, to the streets. I know that made the news and, and we had that picture with us just to remind us how bad it could be. So. Yeah, I know like with uh, the early days of Afghanistan, um, Internet was around early days of Iraq. Internet was around. And I remember watching, you know, videos of IEDs and, and things like that, uh, seeing those in high school and stuff. But that was, you know, when technology was was pretty pretty much up and running by then and, right. and now nowadays with uh like what's going on in ukraine oh, it's, you can almost live stream the it, war in ukraine it is uh, those those fpvs are it's 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 real-time video you could find on on twitch or you know on, on a couple of the uh the other socials uh yeah it's war can be real-timed um, yeah so just in the matter of 30 years the way that information from uh, from the battlefield is distributed to the public is lightning speed. And uh, that, that didn't really exist back then. So when, when you guys got back, right, you told LT like, all right, I got to get home. It's time to go back. Um, was it still just kind of an occurrence at that point? As in like the, well, like cause say now, nowadays, if, uh, if a bird goes down, like it okay. is constant cycle for, you know, yep. 24 to 48 yeah. hours. And then no, everybody got an was, interview and a pitch on it. Yeah, it was, it was, it was out of the news cycle probably very quickly um, because uh, things kind of calmed. It was, you know, obviously spike, what are we doing? Why are we in Somalia? There was a week long of what's going on here, but you know, there weren't that we'd have a reporter every now and then show up, but you know, it, it, it calmed down. Um, I'm sure the administration wanted to make it go away because it wasn't their best moment because word came out later um, that the forces on the ground requested um, gunships and requested armor and requested the support that they knew they needed being the professionals that they were in, in those, in those units and elements. Um, it, yeah. was, it was denied because they didn't want to make it look too quote unquote warlike, uh, <clears throat> you know, and you're asking troops to go into harm's way without giving them the right support. And so it, the idea was, let's get this out of the way real quickly. Um, and so, yeah, no, it, 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 I think it, it lost the news cycle very quickly. I so remember, it's kind of, kind of a flash in the, flash in the pot. And flash, then, yeah, flash it, flash you know. it pan, you know, and, and on the grand scheme of things, it was a, a small, a small part of what was going on in the world at large. You know, it was very important to us on the ground. It was ex ex 
crucially important to us on the ground, uh, especially you know the, the third bat guys and the guys from 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 SF that were literally you know in in the black market during during that that, that firefight. Um, but it was <clears throat> on the grand scheme of things a, a small flash in the pan on the greater global you know, global spectrum. Okay, so Tommy gets home after uh, after that. What what's next? He um he throws away all his army gear because he, he's never ever going back in the military <laughs> again, <laughs> and he swears that's going to happen, and um he's going to go full in on uh on law enforcement, you know. So uh, he goes back to college and begins to take tests, begins to, to study, to train, and uh you know just research you know what what would it like being a police officer, you know talking to people. Um, I worked at a gun shop um, when I first came out, so a lot, of, a lot of officers coming in and out of the shop, so I was talking to them. You know, back in the 90s, it was a very good job to have, uh, you know, and it was, it, was, it was highly sought after. Like, it was hard to become a police officer back then because, you know, there weren't that many av- available positions. Um, I know President Clinton at that time had run on the platform of dumping more money into police work. So that's kind of what caught my eye was, hey, you know, this must be important because they're putting a lot of federal money into hiring police officers. So I decided to jump on that bandwagon. Which is uh, kind of contrary. I don't I don't want to put my tinfoil hat on, (laughs) but that's well, let's just push rewind three years ago. Nobody was well, not enough people, not the right people. We're talking about more funding for the police. It was quite the opposite. So. Back then, uh, that administration they were they were for funding police officers and e- immensely. And- yeah, the cops program. He, he wanted to hire hundred thousand police officers because we were we were coming out of the crime waves of the seventies and eighties. Uh, you know, crack was still. You know, crack had just hit the streets in New York in the in the eighties and nineties, and people forget how violent that really was. I mean, things are things are bad now in cities. Um, and it's on a different level of bad, I would think. It, it's more of a breakdown of society. Back then, on the, the crack wars, was extremely violent because you had a, this whole influx of this new drug into the city. People were literally fighting for, for block space, and you would have to kill off your opponent or your, your, your adversary or the guy next to you to get control of that, of that street corner. And, and then crack, you know, fueled other violence other robberies other crime and it was just a cycle a perpetual cycle and also there was just weren't enough cops in new york city at that time they were in the i think maybe twenty three thousand, which you know it may sound like a whole lot but you're trying to you're basically asking a division to hold down you know seven million people yeah you know 24 hours a day so there weren't enough police officers you know crime was rampant uh, and, and people, like kids were, kids had to go to bed in their bathtub because there's so many bolts flying through the air that kids were getting shot in their beds, you know? Yeah. And that obviously that's terrible. And, you know, one of the reasons, uh, I wanted to, to bring, you know, some, some stuff like this up is because, uh, in my mind, I think, uh, society overall can be very short-sighted. Um, not everybody. So I'm painting with a broad brush, sure. but, you know, uh, it's, it's quick. I think people will forget about that stuff pretty quickly unless they stay, you know, kind of up to date on, you know, recent history and, and, and even further back, you know, cause that was only, 
what was that probably mid nineties or so? Yeah, it was like the mid nineties. You know, if you like again, the, the glory of social media is go back on YouTube and look look on look up the Bronx in the seventies and eighties. You know, look up you know crack wars in New York City, and just see the the physical makeup of this city. I'm talking the, the infrastructure. There were like streets and streets of rubble that looked like you know Berlin 1945 in East New York, Brooklyn, where the city was forgotten. It was told to die by 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 the Ford administration in the 70s when it went bankrupt. Uh, I had friends of mine who were dating cops who were fired, laid off because they, the city ran out of money and the federal government wouldn't come in and help them. So the, the city physically was was a mess. The buildings were smoldering. It was truly, Times Square was truly a dump, a cesspool. It was not the shining city that it was in the 90s and, and the 2000s. It was a definitely a different, grittier place. Um, you know, The Warriors, the great the, the epic film, The Warriors from the 70s, paints a pretty good picture of kind of what it was like. So we have to look back at history to, to kind of compare and contrast. All right, what's, what's different now? What's different then? Why is it the way it is now? And maybe we can learn a few, a few things from the past. You know, if, if you were to compare... Now I'm comparing local to my area, at least uh, recruiting for law enforcement right now is very, very competitive, um, like cutthroat competitive right. because there's not enough applicants. So when when you decided that you wanted to be a, a law enforcement officer, were there people lining up for it? I yep. mean, knowing knowing what you said. Oh, yeah. Um, it was I, I took a test in for New Jersey and I scored like a 98 on it. And I was a veteran um, and I still couldn't get hired because, you know, there was people with, with higher scores. Wow. Tougher to get in. In New York City, you would take the test and they would give the test and, you know, you would wait. They told you it's going to be a three or four year wait to get hired. When, after you take the test, it may be a three or four year wait to get hired um, because it was they were hiring, you know, so many people. But there was also so many applicants. And so I, I took the test actually while I was still in the Army. I took leave to go home to take the test. And that was in I think 92 or 93. I actually took the test and didn't get called in to get hired till 96. So it was, yes, it was very, very tough. It was, it was seen as, as a good job. It was seen as, you know, you know, and the reason why it was a good job is because just like every other good profession, the older generation would tell the younger generation, this is a good job to come into. All right. So your father, maybe an older brother, maybe your neighbor would say, hey, 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 Tommy, you know what? I had a good career. Why don't you come into this job? It, it, it's a good job with good people for, you know, for good reasons. You know, that's why these, these jobs, you know, like just like you hand down your profession to your son, it was a profession you handed down to someone because you were proud of it, um, you know, and, and you believed in it and it, it believed in you. Yeah, and I, I just ex in my mind, that extends that sense of community like through through your your family or your lineage um and just keeps your family in, involved in in the community in some capacity right yeah yeah which, you know, which is pretty cool that that servant that, that servant heart you know as 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 one of my instructors told me um yeah you you had vested vested uh you know interest in in your community and and helping it and serving it so tommy's doing law enforcement uh inevitably He's back in the army at some point. Yeah. So w when did you, when did you uh, re-up? So it's, you know, as, as all good stories begin, it's all about a girl. 
right? So <laughs> I I was dating someone in Rhode Island. And uh, what year was this? This was roughly uh, right before I got hired by the job. So about 90, 1995. About okay. 1995. And her her cousin um, was helping train a bunch of ROTC, junior ROTC cadets. So I would go up there and help them out, either bring them equipment or go support them. Uh, it's good to see young kids work and stuff like that. And these, these kids are from, you know, a good, you know, tough middle-class neighborhood. They're, they're working hard to, to get, to get themselves someplace. So I would show up. Um, they had a ceremony at an air show in Rhode Island. So I went to go up and support them, uh, at that air show. I'm walking around and I see the National Guard desk and the National Guard recruiting desk had a bunch of guys there wearing maroon berets. I'm like, well, what's this all about? I had no idea about the National Guard, no idea that they had airborne units. I'm like, who are you guys? And he's like, oh, we're, we're a long-range surveillance detachment uh, here in the National Guard. Now, I had been in the long-range surveillance detachment on active duty, so I knew yeah. you know, yeah, how, how good it was. And I'm like, you're kidding me. He's like, no, we, we train up here, we jump, we, we do. You know, I was speaking their language. And I'm like, hey, you know what? Yeah, it's only one, one week in a month. How, how, bad, how bad could this be? You know, that sounds <laughs> you, pretty cool. You found you found your tribe. I found the tribe again. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. all right. You know, and they were they were going off to. I was talking to the commander, and they were about to go off to. Uh, back then, we had what's called JTF six missions, and those were missions along the border, where um, U.S. forces would sit and monitor the border, and then radio um, any illegal movement into the country to law enforcement. We couldn't we couldn't intercept at all. But we were just basically eyes and ears, which is what a law range surveillance detachment does. We sit there yeah. with nerve. So, and I had just come back from that mission. We had we did that mission in, in ninety in ninety three, along the border. So I knew it was a really good mission, um, good cause and, and good training. So, uh, yeah, uh, sign me up. <laughs> and and then for for reference, that was at the southern border. Is that what you're referring? Yeah, to? yeah. We we went along okay. the Texas and Arizona border, um, and uh, it was a uh, you know, back then before. All the war started. It was like the closest real mission you can get to, because you were, you know, you're along a border. You had to move it at night. You you were obviously in semi-hostile territory because the drug, you know, drug cartels were still moving drugs back and forth, armed, you sure. know, back and forth. So, um, you know, but the uh, the goal was to just observe it and then report that that movement to a border patrol unit that would come in then and do the intercept. So we were we were basically two-legged drones. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it wasn't much to. Uh much convincing to sign you back up <laughs> no i was like oh this is great this is gonna be fun like i was just throwing all of this stuff away a few years ago <laughs> exactly no. <laughs> now i'm like i'm pulling out my ghillie suit yeah i gotta where's that rucksack <laughs> i threw away so great great you know 173rd lowering sonnell's attachment out of rhode island <clears throat> phenomenal unit phenomenal men um great leaders great ncos and soldiers can't can't say so, about it so at this point you're you're in the guard. You're also still on the police force. It's late nineties ish. Um, what what else is going on for you? You know, I'm 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 busy just trying to learn. You know, learn the streets. I'm busy trying to being a rookie in in East New York. I was in the 75th precinct, which at that time was was the worst precinct in New York City. Um, had had a long had a long history of of, of, of folks that need policing. You know, the community there again, mostly good people. Uh, you know, but just, just inundated with, with crime and, you know, walking into that precinct, you're, you're walking, you, you can, the veterans there were veterans of the crack wars. They were veterans of, of, you know, back when they were grabbing three or four homicides a night, you know, or, you know, they had like 
you know, 400 something people killed, a, a thousand wounded in a, in a year in a 5.3 square mile, um, you know, territory. So um, being out there yeah. on, on foot patrol, you basically got a map. Now, my first day, you got a map, a radio, um, and your sergeant told you, if you need help, give it a call. And then you walked out and you just were walking the streets. Uh, you know, you know, and I, I heard you on a different podcast uh, <laughs> <laughs> talk about this and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you worked night shift. That correct? Yes, I, I worked midnights. Yep. Midnights. And if I'm uh, scrambling my memory correctly, um, something to the effect of it wasn't uncommon to hear gunshots in the distance as you're clocking in. Yeah. So we, we would, we would turn out, um, we, we have roll call, we get our assignments, we go outside, um, you know, wait for the new cars, the old cars to come in to, you know, to, to switch out and you would hear gunshots in the distance. Um, especially on the weekends, you would hear, um, you know, multiple shots, um, in the distance you would hear, uh, you know, I remember on New Year's Eve, my first New Year's Eve in East New York, um, we did a 12 hour shift. Half the, all the senior guys kind of went to the, the ball, worked Times Square. Uh, we, we stayed you know, on the precinct. And so you, you did, did a 12 hour shift, you know, eight to eight. And the boss, the sergeant's like, all right, all your rookies on foot post at 1145, we're to come and pick you up. Make sure you're on post. So I'm like, pick us up for what? I'm thinking. So, smart you know i'm like hey boss tells me to be on this corner at 11 45 i'm there so yeah at 23 45 a van comes in picks us up takes us up into a park under a tunnel there's a tunnel under the park and we're all undercover like the whole precinct's there like all the cars <laughs> you know all the footposts like what's going on here is this like is this some kind of party and midnight comes out and i'm telling you kevin midnight in east new york back in you know 1997 it was a 20-minute firefight, non-stop gunfire for 20 minutes. I saw tracers. I heard automatic fire from large-caliber weapons. Uh, it was insane to know how many guns were out there uh, and how much ammo was out there. And then you, you, look, you look at yourself and the pistol you carry and, and the three magazines that you have, and you're like, I am completely outgunned here. Like, it, it, especially from the point of view of someone who's opera, like operationally right. Yeah, I'm like I'm like you have no idea. Like that is not a pistol. That 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 is a large caliber rifle going off right now, guys. And that's automatic fire. He's not pulling the trigger fast. This, someone has an automatic rifle out there. So yeah, it 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 was just amazing to see. Like all right, this is it sunk in. Like just how dangerous out there could be you know, with that many firearms and that many people willing to shoot them off with, with impunity because they knew we weren't coming there. We knew, we were told not to respond. Like, sure, you'd be insane. Don't get yourself hurt. You know, driving, basically you're driving into an ambush. I'm like, yeah, I've done that once or twice. It's not a good, it's not a good <laughs> idea. Let's stay here until the bullets come down. And then we spent the whole night, you know, either picking up the pieces of people who got shot because bullets come down. Um, or responding to bulls through windows or yeah. So it was, um, it was an interesting place to work to tell you that much. It was a very interesting place to work. Sounds, uh, very chaotic, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't all that way though. Right? No, it, it, it's again, police work is like, it's like the military, like combat. It's long, long periods of boredom and monotony. 
spiked by intense periods of excitement or or fighting for your life or trying to save someone else's life you know um so and that could happen at you know at, at any second that alarm goes off on your on your radio and someone's calling for help and there's a, a distinctive sound when a police officer comes over the radio and they're asking for help because you can hear the ruckus in the background you can hear the fear in their in, in their voice and, and you know that person on the other end of the radio is literally might be fighting for their life because you know, we've all lost friends um you know doing their job so you know and, but what, when that happens the world comes crashing down on you and it's it's a, a truly a great thing to see when you call for help and and that help comes because that help will keep coming until you beg them to stop because cops will go through the fires of hell to to come to come get you and you will hear them coming from other precincts you will hear a helicopter fly overhead they will come crashing down on top of you um and they don't even know who you are it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what you are you're a person on that radio calling for help they're going to come help you and that yeah, was, and, that was comforting and that's a uh, a good testament to um to police officers in general but it's especially police officers in that that new york city area um you know and i i don't want to fast forward through anything but i i you know think it would be a good transition so talking about police officers running to help other people hearing you know the the chaos that's going on um and things like that which you're no stranger to but let's let's fast forward to september 10th sure what, what was tommy o'hare doing on september 10th i was actually i was actually up in rhode island um i i had to do some paperwork up there whatnot so i gotten off of work early um and it's funny, my Jeep was, I got into an accident with my, my red Jeep. Uh, I, I rear-ended someone who stopped short. My fault, obviously. Um, <laughs> so, threw it out there. So, I had, so I got this rental car and it looked like, like, it looked like a police car. It was like an Impala or, I, it was like a big police car. Okay. So, I clocked off of work. I had to run up quick to Rhode Island to um, get some paperwork done. And I was going to race back down to New York to make my next shift. And uh, so I was up there, and so I stayed overnight. And then the the next morning, uh, I wake up, and I'm I'm gonna head back down to the city. And you know, the news comes out that you know the towers have been hit. And I remember calling up a friend of mine who lived in in Staten Island. He was a sanitation officer because uh, I knew he he had pretty a good view of the city. And he's like, he's like they're gone. Like, well, what do you mean, Matt? He's like, they're gone. Like, the towers are gone. And I'm like, you, you got to be kidding me. And uh, so I, I get back in my car and, and, you know, make my make my midnight shifts. Like, I'm flying back into the city, um, you know, doing 90 miles an hour. Uh, and I make it. And at that point, New York, the NYPD had a, had a just an all call. So we every cop had to check in because we had to get a count on who was left. Because at that point, yeah. we didn't know. There was massive rumors going back and forth the entire first precinct had disappeared so many people were dead we didn't know who we had guys you know at any given day you have cops everywhere all over the city even from your own precinct we had guys who had gone down to traffic court in manhattan we had guys who had gone down to you know the civilian complaint review board which is near the, the towers that morning so you can you could be spread out all over the city so that each commander had to get an account on who was available who was still alive um and their medical skills 
know, because we didn't know if we we're gonna have like a, an enormous mass casualty event or what. So, um, yeah, so I, I make it back down to my precinct uh, in time for my uh, my shift, and then um, we just sit there and wait because you know we want we, we want to know if everyone's okay, and and not everyone was. And and during that time, you know, I I suppose while you're all you're I, I'm just you know trying to envision it. So like you're all waiting for roll some type of roll call to get yeah. accountability, and you know maybe not everybody's there at first, and you're like you know is I'm just throwing is is Joe like what about right. Joe yeah and then, and then Joe walks through the door and you're like thank God Joe's here and we, then you're like what about Steve and then that, Steve doesn't walk through the door that exactly happened we had um. We had one guy, O'Donnell. Um, he was down at a traffic court in New York City, in, in Manhattan, and I remember the relief seeing him walk through the door covered in covered in dust. You know, he was a mess, you know, and just like you know, just that sigh of relief, like, oh God, he's 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 here, good, you know. Um, but then we knew, um, actually, a Joe, Joe Joe Vigiano, who had worked in the seven five and was then went on to become an emergency service officer in the emergency service unit, our, our SWAT team, rescue team, um, who had married a, a police officer also in the 7-5. Um, we knew he was, he was down there in the towers. Um, and we knew his, his brother was a, was a firefighter as well. So we, we probably assumed they were both down there. Um, and they were. Uh, unfortunately, they, they didn't make it. So you, know, you, have, you have that going on too. So it was a, you know, tough. It was tough because you, you knew someone wasn't coming back. Well, final final calls like, hey, we're we're still missing some guys. So, um, so and, and and during that time, so New York, like you um, had said earlier, very wild place, you know, in terms of uh, crime and and things like that. You know those those days, right after nine eleven, what what was the city like in terms of uh, policing and crime? Yeah, um, I, re- I remember, you know, we, we, we immediately went to 12-hour tours. So immediately, all days off were, were canceled. You were doing 12-hour shifts, you know, so you did, you know, 7 to 7. Um, and I remember being on on uh, Pickin' Avenue, a very pretty rough town, or rough part of town, and, and a car pulling up next to me. And one guy saying, hey, you know what? I usually don't, don't like you guys, you know, but, but what you did the other day, going in those towers, that was something else. So there was a lot of, of goodwill there because um, they saw in real time what you know public servants do on a daily basis. It wasn't a surprise to us. You know, no one was surprised that that Joe Vigiano or Morris Smith went running into the tower because they did that their entire career. We'd done that our entire career. Like that's just what that's the social contract that you have with the public. Like you're expected to do these certain things. And it's just what you do. So no one was shocked that, you know, men and women went into the towers to help complete strangers. Um, I think the public was, because the public had never seen it at such a, such a big scale. Um, but, but we weren't, because, you know, it, it's just what we did. But the city was tense. The city was, the city was one hit away from maybe falling apart. There was a tension in the air that was palpable. And... You know, it was mixed with with pride and strength and patriotism, but also with fear, because you know 
there was fear in the air. Uh, at least, again, this is my perspective. This is one person's perspective from his father. Sure, sure. You, know, you talk to a fireman or you know a transit officer or port authority officer, they may have a different perspective. But from again, from from Tom's foxhole, from what I could sense going on, you know, and knowing kind of why this happened, you know, with just a, the small background I had and knowledge I had of of certain things, you know, and have have been studied this before in the past in other regions of the world. I'm like, this is what a war looks like. And this war is going to be gone for a long time. I remember, I remember thinking that, I told a friend of mine while we're on patrol, I'm like, this is what it's going to be like for a very long time now. You know, and I, I think back to 9-11, and I, I think, you know, for your generation, my generation, and and plus or minus a couple of generations on, on both ends here, they can pretty much tell you where they were on 9-11. Yeah. yeah. So for me... I was I was in seventh grade. Right. <clears throat> I was in English class, if I'm not mistaken. So it was obviously it was in the morning. Um, and let's see, Tower One had been hit, but we didn't have like the TV on or anything at that point. Like, right. and and there wasn't much. I don't think there was much probably for like text messaging or stuff through like between the teachers and stuff. Like the students, we definitely didn't have phones. Sure, <laughs> but. Uh, so anyways, I, I remember my English teacher, she was saying something about, you know, the, the Twin Towers and no one really like, we're a bunch of seventh graders. Right. Yeah. And you're, and you're right. out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and we're in Iowa. So right. we're, we're half the country, half the country away, uh, a bunch of seventh graders. And we're like, well, that doesn't sound good. You right. know, we we're like, oh, a plane, a plane hit a building. Yeah. Right. And around here. There's not much for tall buildings. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, right. Like Omaha's, Omaha's right next door. It has uh, the Woodman at that time. It was the Woodman of the World building, which was like the tallest building. Definitely in our area, right? Um, but in comparison to a place like New York, uh, like New York City or uh, Sacramento or, or L.A. or like any of these other big cities, um, this building gets dwarfed right by yeah. by some yeah. of these other ones so it's like oh you know a, a skyscraper was hit by an airplane that sounds bad and then i go on to my next class which was a math class and by that time everybody's talking in the hallways like you know oh plane hit this that and the other um no one no one had ever heard of bin laden or the taliban or al-qaeda or anything. like we're a bunch of Right. middle eight, middle school kids right sure. so i remember students talking about how their teachers were playing the you know at that point i think it was still just tower one like they watched tower one on tv and then watched the plane hit tower two right my my class my math teacher now for a long time i tried to chew on this what he said because he said uh it's not important. We need to concentrate on, on getting our work done right now in the moment, you know, as an adult now, I look back and I'm like, he probably just didn't, he, he probably didn't comprehend what was going on either. Like right. let's, yeah. let's do our, let's do our schoolwork. Work. Yeah. Now how absolute wrong that statement could yeah. have been, <laughs> you know, right. Fast yeah. forward. 
but in, in the moment, you, you don't yeah. know that. Well, most people thought it was an accident. Like the first one, they thought, and initially, when you know, when they heard it, they thought it was an accident. Like, and, and that that has happened before in foggy weather, you know. But it was such a clear, beautiful day. That's the one thing I remember so clearly about it. It was such a beautiful, clear, like late summer day. The sky was blue, not a cloud in the sky. Great temperature. So, you know, a plane hitting a you know planes have hit the Empire State Building you know, in the fog back in the 40s and 50s when they didn't have the high-tech stuff we have now. Um, so the first one was like, ah, you know, that was bad, but the minute the second one would happen, you're like, all right, that's that's a pattern. Like, this is intentional. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and for me, in the, in the following days of that, and, you know, I'm going off my, you know, preteen recollection here, but I remember watching the like the bucket brigades down at ground zero i remember watching george bush on tv um you know during those few days right after or you know whatever period of time right after you guys are on 12 hour shifts but was there still a lot of people going down to ground zero just doing whatever they could sure we did it after a 12 hour shift so what you did was um you you did you did 12 hours on patrol and then you went down to ground zero um, and then you, you just you just walked in there and got on a line or, you know, did did what you could to move stuff. You know, it was it wasn't organized, but it was organized. It was an innate ability and instinct to know what to do. And the amount of support that was flooded down there was phenomenal. I always said you could show up to ground zero naked as a jaybird. And within five minutes, you'd be fully kitted out with overalls, you know, a helmet, equipment. And then you basically just moved, um, you, you moved dirt, you moved, you moved what you could to try and find a cavern. There was, the amazing, the amazing thing was we, we had dogs up on, up on the pile as well. And someone would, would think they heard maybe someone tapping in, in the pile and the whole pile would go quiet. You, you, you'd heard you'd hear like people say hey be quiet be quiet and a couple of thousand people would just stand still and be quiet and pray that maybe they they find somebody uh which which was phenomenal like to see all humanity like that acting as one uh and, and i remember thinking to myself abstractly wow this is how the pyramids probably got built like if if a couple of thousand people work together on one on one one item 12 hours a day or 24 hours a day Anything can be done. And that's what the cops, the firemen, the steel workers, civilians, military, they were all just moving buckets of, of dirt, looking, looking for bodies uh, and looking hopefully for survivors. So, uh, yeah. Sure. Wrong. And, and wrong. you know, meanwhile, you're still in the guard. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm still in the guard. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, I mean, was there a, a similar um you know kind of course of action with with the national guard it's like hey let's get accountability of everybody um you know what what was the guard doing during that time locally uh, locally uh, you know i i really can't speak for the again i my guard unit was in rhode island so i was about my unit was three hours away i actually went out of state to my guard unit okay that's right that's yeah right. so the new york i mean the new york guard was there um you know and and they were they were working their own their own sector but i knew in the back of my mind uh that we were going to go to war. This was going to this was going to end into a into a conflict. Um, 
in, in some way, shape, or form. I just, judging my, just by past history and you know what was coming out of the White House, but just being a student of history, this was a bridge too far. This wasn't just a, you know, a hit on the, the embassies in, in Kenya uh, that happened, you know, back in the 90s when, when bin Laden first, first came, you know, was, showed his head. Uh, I actually, there was actually rumors of bin Laden being in Mogadishu. Uh, I remember hearing one <laughs> Intel report back in 93, you know, that there was, you know, mercenaries, quote unquote, um, in, in, in and around Somalia trying to, to drum up this kind of this Islamic support. So uh, so I knew this was a bridge too far for, for America. Something bad was going to happen to someone else. You know, and it, it was, let's see. I, I don't think, and again, I, this was in my adolescent years, but I can't imagine apart from maybe the first attempt on the World Trade Center um, that a, a lot of people unless you were, you know, operationally doing something for the, for the military, you might not have known who bin Laden even was at that point. I mean, is that a fair that's, statement? That's an extremely fair statement. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that, you know, we weren't that focused on that. We were insulated a bit. We knew it was out there, but you know, we'd gone through our terrorism cycles. And, and back when I was growing up, a lot of the terrorists were leftist terrorists, right? So in growing up in the seventies and eighties, the, um, the, the, the slant was, most terrorist units were communist supported, you know, proxied by, by the Soviet Union or Cuba. So sure. you had, you know, the, the, the Red Army faction. You had the PLO, which was a socialist uh, Arab movement. You know, all those Arab movements back then were mostly socialist based in, in, the, in, the, you know, in the, the vein of, of Nasser in, in Egypt back in the 50s. So a lot of those elements up there were, you know, socialist based with, with a, an Arab, you know, Muslim trappings, but you know, Arafat wasn't wasn't a fundamentalist. You know, Arafat was a socialist. Yeah. Uh, you know, all the all your terrorist groups in Europe were all left leaning. So the idea of a religious terrorist group was kind of foreign to us. Although we had built one to fight the Russians in <laughs> Afghanistan. Uh, sure. You know, uh, but we thought, oh, they they just don't like Russians. We didn't fully comprehend. No, we have to go go deeper. Like you have to understand you know, the anthropology and, you know, and, and the, and the, the root cause of, of their belief system, which means kind of everybody that isn't like them. You know, we, we looked at the world very diametrically. You either, you know, pro us or pro Russian, and you fell in those camps. There was a third camp out there that didn't like either one. And yeah, we, and we, we, we missed that. Yeah. Yep. Just uh, a blind eye, obviously. Right. Um, you know, so around you know, that, that post 9-11 time, uh, Bush, he, you know, declares uh, like global war on terrorism. Um, what, what's going on around that time in, in your mind when when he announces the global war on terrorism? So I looked, um, you know, I, I looked at, at, at what, what was happening and I looked at the unit I was in and, uh, you know, I looked at the, looked at the city. And I remember telling my partner in the car, I'm like, uh, this is this is going to be a long war. And he's like, what do you mean, Tommy? And I look back at at, at you know, the British conflict in Northern Ireland, at at the, the, the Colombian conflict in Colombia you know, with, with, the, with the FARC at, at other groups. And I'm like, this is a very asymmetric war, um, you know, kind of like Vietnam, but different. And it's not going to be won quickly if, you know, you know or, or won at all even. 
like it's it's tough to win something like that you're fighting an idea but i knew i knew someone was going to get hurt i knew i remember sitting in the pilot i knew folks still is still in service still in special forces still in that that realm and i knew someone was going to get hurt and I, I told people on the pile that i told like i know you're angry you know cops were getting frustrated and angry and and we all were i'm like look i know folks that are going to put a beating on the people that did this to us so have that you know just hold on to that because they're, they're going to put the boots to to whoever did this to us um yeah and i've heard that from more than one person uh you know through my 14 14 years um in the service like somebody knows somebody right who who was either you know one of the first troops in or or, or whatever and that's a that's a very common theme it's like payback will happen right it's, it's just a matter it's a matter of when where and when yeah where and, and when. there's a lot of people that talk about um you know the the recruiting lines after 9 11 at the recruiting station like people were signing up to go kick some ass and and get revenge yeah and, and, and a lot of people um that, that's literally why they signed up they signed up because of 9 11 right yeah it's, so, it's, it's crazy yeah so at that time you're already in 9 11 uh is on your mind afghanistan maybe the word was was dropped you know the 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 name afghanistan the country maybe that was being thrown around before you know people started getting on birds and going overseas right um but i know people that signed up because of september 11th and, and i don't know exactly your military history when it comes to this time period but i know people that signed up to go to afghanistan and then went to iraq yeah, right. Like you, you, you really can't choose your war. That's why. Uh, that's why you, you, you never chase war because you, you never get the one you want, or the one you think you're going to get. Believe it or not, I got a phone call, uh, from from Blackwater. Oh wow! So um, again, through a friend of mine who was a lawyer, who had worked um, for them uh, in their in the legal offices. Back then, um, the way Blackwater worked was by word of mouth. Right. So he had, he had worked with us with my lawyer, my long surveillance attachment um, on some exercises. Um, and so word filtered down to him, like, hey, do you personally know people that could fit this mission? Yeah. And the, that that's how it, that's how it happened. You got a phone call from a guy who was vouching for you. And then he asked you, can you vouch for anybody? So uh, I, I reached out and. Um, they were they were getting ready to go go in, and so I, I reached out to a couple of friends of mine that were out of the service. One was my former spotter, Ron, uh, who's an SF sniper, great great guy. Um, and so I you know, I personally vouched for three or four of them to go in. I I did I didn't. I decided I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay with the army. Um, it was it was a tough choice, but uh, I I decided I'll stay with the army. But these guys were out already. And, you know, they opted to go go that route. So I knew they were going into, you know, north of, of Afghanistan. They're getting visas for it to go into there and then, you know, work work that mission set. So Sure. Uh, and, was, and, and were some of these guys, uh, were they were they Northern Alliance guys? Uh, well, no, all, all the guys I, that I vouched for were, were former, uh, either former Rangers or former SF guys. So they were, you know, and they went in to black, you know, their mission. And I knew not to ask them, you know, where they were going. Uh, what they were doing. Uh, I later, uh, later on, I got to meet guys who who linked up. Who you know, 
I get to know and jump with one of the first CIA case officers that was on the ground, uh, Alex Hernandez. Uh, you know, he was he was the guy, like the guy, you know, in in Afghanistan with with the CIA. Yeah, which um, is an honor to meet him. But yeah, the guys I work for or guys I vouch for were were going in for Blackwater, doing whatever they did over there. Uh, didn't ask them, but they they would so, send some send some pretty cool pictures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so during the during that time period, um, your your Rhode Island National Guard unit are they? They're, you know, yep. they're, up, are they cycling up to go somewhere? Yep. Yeah. You know, rumors are rumors are flying around. You know, stuff's flying around. Um, and then the invasion of of Iraq is 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 announced. So then and, you do you're one of the people that went to Iraq before afghanistan yes then. yeah yeah so See, that's, um, that's such an interesting i'm not putting a, a tinfoil hat on here sure. by any, but that is such an interest the way that played out is just in hindsight is very interesting because there were so many people that were like i'm signing up to go to afghanistan and then they get sent to iraq right uh, you but, know if you sit back down think about the way the wars were fought two different wars fought two different ways all right so afghanistan was a very sf low-key you know special operations command centric mission and it it was working really well when it was that so they definitely yeah. had you know they definitely had you know the 10th mountain there 101st but it was you know very sf you know sf driven um special operations command driven so yeah. they didn't need the amount of the amount of force needed because of the terrain because of the type of area it was they weren't looking to hold hold you know hold ground they're looking to you know do very specific you know, injects and 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 assaults to eliminate a, a terrorist group. So you wouldn't need the amount of force you would think there that you did. Now, juxtapose that to Iraq, where you're basically invading a country with a conventional army that's yeah. where you need your landmass. So yeah, you know, it's knowing that now is 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 the hindsight's great. But yeah, at at the moment, you're like, oh, we're going to go in Afghanistan. One, people couldn't even find on the map. You know, two, people couldn't tell you the geography of it. You know, they didn't know how mountainous it was, how tough it was. You know, people had people knew Iraq because it was in the news, you know, back, yeah. back in the 90s. Um, so, yeah, um, the uh, the word came down that there was going to be an invasion of Iraq and that my my alert unit wasn't going to be the first ones in. So our division wasn't being deployed yet. We were on the back burner for the second and third rotation. But units in, in Rhode Island needed help to round them out. So they were looking for volunteers. So uh, my commander, Mike Banning, phenomenal, probably the best commander I've ever had, was was humble enough to release some of his guys, me included, to go in and help support the MPs uh, going into Iraq because that's what Rhode Island had a lot of was MPs. So they were being they were being mobilized to to go over. So uh, we we crossed we crossed the line and, and went back down to you know back down the conventional line and uh went over with the mps okay and then so w roughly what year was this then i want to say it was um 2003 2004 okay oh three or four uh and then from my recollection of it like things weren't quite spicy yet no you know they weren't yeah, yeah the initial push went in um it was very quick it was very sudden you know uh they didn't put up much of a fight, right? They were, were seen as, as liberators, right? It was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that didn't last long. But uh, yeah, my, my first posting was in Fallujah. 
like I went to Fallujah and, and we used to go down and get chicken like downtown. Like Fallujah like wasn't that bad at that time. Now I just got off a podcast with a, a his name's Justin Thompson. Um, his podcast is you know, we're pre-recording before before nine eleven, as you know. Sure. Uh, but his podcast, he talks about his experience in Fallujah, and it was the uh, the second the second assault on Fallujah in in oh four. Right. And how? We're, we're, the, I, you guys had to have been there within a year of yeah, each other. Yeah, it, it got, it right. got, yeah, it got, oh. it got bad fast. Like when we first got there, we knew Fluja, Ramadi, Habania, uh, Fluja, Ramadi, those areas were, 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 were definitely hotbeds for pro Saddam loyalists. Uh, but they just weren't as organized as they got later on. You know? So going, yeah, going out on the market, that wasn't, everything has its risk, but it obviously right. wasn't off limits. Right. Yeah. It was like you, you were, you were still, you're still ears up, you know, you were still getting, getting some mortars lobbed at you. We still got IED, uh, but it wasn't the, the, the beehive that the, um, that the MP, that, 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 that the Marines went into later on. And, and after, well, we were, we were relieved by the 82nd and um, then, so it was, it wasn't definitely the beehive that it was at, that turned into once, you know, once Bremer fired the entire Iraqi army. Great, yeah. Great job. Um, <laughs> let's put, let's put the biggest employer out of business and leave all these armed trained men with nothing, nothing to do. Uh, yeah. Good job guy. What uh, could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's, it's not like we, you know, we like, even after, even after we invaded Germany, we had German soldiers working with us at the checkpoints. I mean, <laughs> come on. Open up a history book guy. Um, so yeah, so once that happened, uh, it, it definitely took a turn, a turn for the worst. Um, so you, you, uh, you probably ripped out of Iraq in, in 04 then went back home. Yeah. That first tour was like, I think it was like 15 months. We never knew when we were coming home. That was really fun. Um, because everybody thought it'd be like a one year tour or two. No one knew. So we, um, I left, I left there and then. He immediately linked up with my lurse unit who was on orders to go back. So, um, you know, tough, tough call that, but you know, I promised, I promised my boss I'd, I'd be with him. Yeah. So I, um, I had maybe a couple of months off and then was, was back in the pipeline to head back over. So it was kind of a, a turn and burn for you then. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was tough. Uh, you know, cause we were, we were tired. I remember being really tired after that tour. We'd what what we had done. I gathered a bunch of other volunteers, and at that time, IEDs were just becoming becoming interesting. I remember getting a class on IEDs from the Air Force in Baghdad about hey, this this you may see these out out there in in the wild, and I, I turned to my, my buddy Wayne. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, we are because if I was if I was an Iraqi, yeah. I would be doing this. Like that's how that's how we thought. We thought, look, if if I was an Iraqi and someone came into my country, I'd be doing X, Y, and Z. And that's how we had to think. What would we do if we were them? You know, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but <laughs> legend legend has told me that you had some involvement with SOPs and IEDs. Is that accurate? So, like, we would again. This is where being a cop in the city paid off. All right. So you you try and mix both both skill sets because both skill sets are are actually quite passive 
Um, 80, 90% passive, 10% very, very kinetic. Uh, but we would, we would go out and I, I would, I would go out and, um, we would sweep the roads and we would drive the roads and look for anomalies, look for things that weren't there before the day before. So we had, we had a beat, we had a beat. Sure. And we would learn to look for telltale signs and we worked certain areas. We, we, we picked up on their SOPs. We were finding more IEDs. We were going off the main roads and into areas where, you know, soldiers didn't go. A lot of the, it was, the war was new. And a lot of these guys, this was their first time in combat. I'd been fortunate enough to, to have two tours before. And also walking a footpost in the projects in East New York, you learn to know your limits. So yeah, I didn't mind going into maybe sketchier areas with, with nine other troops. I knew we could hold our own. Yeah, and, and to talk to people and maybe get information and, and build rapport with, with the locals and, and glean that information. Basic community policing in in wartime. So trying to bridge the both gaps. So yeah, we we were finding a lot of IEDs and we we're getting pretty good at it. I mean, a couple found us. We weren't perfect, like you know. Sure. <laughs> um, but we we got to like, and everyone was doing that. Like I told them flat out every morning, this is a volunteer, this is a volunteer squad. Like you guys do not have to do this. If anyone wants to volunteer your way out of this, completely understand. I'm asking you to go out and look for bombs before they blow up. Um, not a one, not a one flinched. And and they'd go out. And I told them anyone can call bullshit. If anyone feels the hair in the back of your neck, I don't care if you're E4 or, or or an E6. If you feel the hair in the back of your neck go up, you got on the radio. We're stopping. And I don't care if it's a tin can, an empty hole, or an IED. It's 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 going to be looked at seriously, and and you'll be given that respect. So that, that we got, we just got lucky. And then, you know, I had two guys show up one morning, um, that wanted to talk to us about what we were doing. Um, and so that, that was cool to pass that knowledge off. Cause yeah. the, something that's so cool about the army or the military in general is sharing lessons learned. Yeah. Yeah. And back then it was done like by word of mouth, like back then we had, we had, uh, we had digital cameras. That was the big thing it was a, if you had a digital camera, you were a god because you could take a picture of it. You made a, a slideshow. You went to other, another squad and show them, look, on this road here at this, you know, at this turn, look for this type of red, red dead core. Look for this pile of dirt or, you know, a pile of, pile of gravel. So oh, we, we kind of gathered all that information and intelligence. And we weren't obviously the only ones doing it. But yeah, um, but somehow, you know, I, again, I. I think he was telling the truth. I'm not going to call the guy a liar, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I asked him. <laughs> These two guys show up, um, you know, one morning, you know, two guys, you know, middle fifties beards carried themselves a particular way. I'm like, Hey, where's, where's Tom? I'm like, uh, I'm Tom. He's like, yeah, we'd, um, we'd like to come out with you and, and see what you're doing. I'm like, great. Sure. Who are you? Like <laughs> two guys beard. Were they, were they in uniforms? Were they in civilians? No, no, they were, um, they were, they, you know, they, they talked to us afterwards. They were retired from, um, from a from a very special unit and their boss um general schumacher at that time okay who was chief of staff told them to go to iraq and find these people who are finding ieds somehow word got back to schumacher that hey we're, we're finding ieds he's like go find them you know and see what they're doing uh and you know and then you're talking back and forth you know uh, you know just you 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 treat people like that with respect. You don't, you don't fawn over them. You, you know who they are. Once they yeah. say that, you know, so you don't like to act all, you know, 
all goofy around him or like you know or get some some fanboy stuff like oh wow, i got two guys we treat them like like normal guys like hey look here's our mission you sit there and they were a true testament to uh, guys that that attract that that unit attract very humble open to learning um you know we found an ied once and uh my, my, my buddy wayne took one of the guys out there to watch it and Wayne showed him kind of the pile and showed him the telltale signs, you know, the, the red dead cord and we come running back and, uh, you know, his, his partner's like, Hey, Hey, Randy, what, uh, you know, what's up there? It's like, ah, oh, there's an IED up there. I'm like, how do you know? He's like, because Wayne told me there's an IED up there. <laughs> you know? You know? And, and this was a guy who, who months, months prior had been on the raid to kill Saddam's son. Like he was, he was the lead, lead assaulter to kill Saddam's son just six months prior before he retired, you know? So uh, yeah, it was just great work with those guys, true professionals. You know, I wrote up like a, like an eight page paper of just kind of what we did through some pictures in there. And, uh, you know, it was, was great, you know, and they were, they're with us for about two weeks riding with us and taking videos and just asking questions, you know, real true professionals, really, really great to work with them. So. Yeah. And the, you know, one of the key things I, I like to take away from that, uh, experience is just like the importance of sharing knowledge and lessons learned for other people because a, a decade later I would find myself in Iraq getting convoy briefs and you know the little pamphlets and all that stuff of you know look out for IEDs here because I was, in, I was in transportation I was sure. 80, 88 Mike yep um and then at that first deployment, I was gun trucks the first half and a HET driver, HETs the whole, the, yep. the heavy equipment yeah. um, very on the second job. half. Very dangerous job. <laughs> so, well, it, it, it wasn't so spicy at that point. Um, and I'm, I'm very fortunate for that. But the mindset going out on convoy was always that things can go sideways really fast. So um, this is what we're looking out for, right? And a lot of the squad leaders team leaders convoy commanders and assistant convoy commanders like this wasn't their first rodeo and they had their fair share of convoys and ieds and passing on that knowledge um to us you know as pfc rooney or specialist rooney at, the, at that time you know so just sharing those lessons learned uh just how critical you know stuff like that is and you, and you wouldn't even you would never know unless you're thrown in that situation. Uh, right. So like, and what I mean by that is when, uh, when you do hard things, whether it's voluntary or not, like you're going to learn something from it. So absorb it and share it with others because it's likely to happen again. Right. Um, so that, that's kind of where I mean with that. So now with that being said, uh, Afghanistan still going on. It's, I don't want to say it's in the rearview mirror of, of the country because it's, it's not, but it's definitely, it's not, like you yeah. said, it's, it's not mainstream. No, no, it, it was a very small, you know, it was, you know, a very small war compared to the massive invasion that was Iraq. Sure. So after, after that second Iraq tour, you go home, is it back to police? Right, right back to police work, right? I take, I get some... You know, I got 90 days to readjust and use up some leave and whatnot. And then, you know, I show back up at that time. I bought a house in upstate or upstate, what we call upstate New York in Orange County, just north of New York City. So I changed precincts to the 4-4 precinct 
in the South Bronx. So, um, you know, I, 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 I show up there then once I come back uh, as a, as a quote unquote rookie, you know, because I've been out of the game for a couple of years. Cause I, I was gone for about three years, you know, because I had two back-to-back tours that lasted roughly about three straight years. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, between my time with the MPs and my time with learning surveillance uh, overseas. Uh, so I was, it was time to get back to, get back to the, the grind um the the, the <laughs> you know war i look back you know going on deployment was a break i i was more stressed as a police <laughs> officer in in the south bronx than i was um in, in a hide site with lurse in iraq or looking for ieds it was crazy but it just and for for time frame it was this around oh five ish oh oh six oh seven yeah okay um so it was back, back to, you know, back to, back to being a police officer. Yeah. So, I mean, just, you know, obviously no stranger to, uh, to conflict or <laughs> spicy experiences, I guess we want to say, right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you've, you've always, you know, up, up to this point in your life, it, it's not a, it's not uncommon. Um, and you're, you're obviously a very caring person and, want to share your experiences and, and help others. Um, so you go right back to policing, uh, arguably in a tougher spot than when you left, um, after some, some pretty crazy experiences overseas. Uh, how long are you policing again before you get, before you get called up? <laughs> yeah, not, not long actually. Um, so, so Tommy hadn't thrown away his uniform again. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm like, uh, how long am I going to be here? I was, I was maybe a year and a half. Um, I had switched over once I came back, my, the LURS unit had been, um, disbanded and turned into a regular infantry, airborne infantry company, elite as it is, it wasn't lowering surveillance. And I did, I did not want to go back to, you know, leading a squad after having the, the awesome responsibility of leading a, a LURS team. So I decided to, to put the rucksack down. And maybe cross over to maybe other work. And at that time, there was a um, a special operation detachment being built in our, in in Rhode Island um, that was looking for intel people. So I wasn't going to be an operator. I wasn't going to be Green Beret. I'd be supporting them. Um, sure. So um, and they were looking for for folks, and they were you know they were on jump status, and all my older friends were going over there. It was a place for like older senior level people, you know, to go because we're, we're going to make the core nucleus of a task force. So you wanted senior level people, people with experience. So I, yeah. went, I went over there. Um, it seemed like a good, it sounds like a good fit. It was a great fit. It was a great, you know, especially given my age, you know, Hey, look, my, my knees are shot. You know, my back's done. You know, <laughs> um, you know, the hundred pound ruck just, just won eventually. So I go over there. Well, I'm Benosa knee. Well, Special operations is on their own deployment clock, which is a lot quicker than the conventional forces. Yeah. So, you know, we get alerted again. Um, but this time it wasn't that. This time I'm not even going to play the funk. It was we got alerted to go down to Special Operation Command South in Florida and support them in their operation in the Caribbean and Central America. So although it was a deployment, we were away from our, our families and our homes. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a shooting war. It was more of a thinking, you know, strategic, sure. you know, so I, I worked down there, um, you know, for, for a few years, which, which wasn't bad at all. Now, do you suppose that was kind of like a, a crawl, walk, run 
kind of uh, cycle? No, I think it or was. Just... I think it was just Special Operations Command needed folks to to outfit their their theater Special Operations Command because the the op tempo just went through the roof, right? So we they were doing a lot more work in Central America. So it was just our our number just came up. There is a wheel. There is a list. You know, at Department of Defense, and they have to match you know units to 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 um to missions. Uh, the SAD had had already done a mission in the Horn of Africa in, in its infancy before it officially stood up. So it already had that kind of experience. It was just a luck of the draw, you know, and we were lucky because um, uh, I got, I got stationed in Key West, right? So <laughs> like, like, uh, you know, you really can't, you really can't complain, you know? So when, when people joke about like, let's go invade the Bahamas, right? Like, <laughs> I, I, I got that. I done that. That was great. You know, why can't um, we invade somewhere that's hot? It has right. a nice beach. Exactly. You know, why can't yeah, exactly. Why can't we go someplace that's cool? And sure enough, you know, and my, 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 my buddy told me, he's like, Tom, he's like, be careful. He's like, they're giving me this cookie because, <laughs> because you're about to hit you with a hell with, with a baseball bat. So enjoy it while you can. Oh man. Yeah. So I mean, and did that eventually come? Like, okay, now now we got a serious mission. Yeah. Or I mean, how, did, I mean, how did that transpire? No, it was, it was, I mean, it was a great mission. We were down, I was, I was a liaison between uh, the Joint Interagency Task Force South in Key West and Special Operations Command. So the JIDF South mission was to detect and monitor illicit traffic coming into the country, mostly via airplanes or boats, mostly drugs, right? So their job was to detect and monitor that. And then they would alert the Coast Guard to vector them in to intercept the boats or airplanes or whatever. Um, and my job was to go down there and try to coordinate um, what special operations were doing, deconflict with law enforcement. I was sent down there because I was a cop, right? So I can I can walk down there and talk to the, the law enforcement officials there from the FBI, DEA, Customs, the Coast Guard, and sure. have and have some some rapport with them, you know. Whereas they saw any other military guy going down there was just strictly military. I could walk in and say, "Hey, I'm Tommy." I'm a, I'm, I'm a street cop from New York city. That wall immediately comes down. Yeah. So you build that, you build that rapport. And then I can walk over to the military guy and say, hey, I'm Sergeant first class, Tommy O'Hare from special operations command and speak military talk and be able to deconflict and interpret what those both elements were doing back up to higher. So that was just my, I could explain why a, a certain case can't be exposed to the public like the military sure. we wanted to because it, he's building a case. He has, he has to go to court and explain the whole process of, you know, discovery and the legal side of it. And then explain to the, 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 the law enforcement guys why the army wants to come in with this unit and do this, 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 that. So that was a great job to be able to play both sides and, and kind of deconflict a lot of stuff. And we, we got a lot of work done down there again, working again, working with great people. That's, that's been the story of my life is I've been fortunate to work with the best Americans that are out there. Um, yeah and that's that's it has nothing to do with me it's pure luck it's uh, i i do this because i legitimately work with heroes and people that you know i was not the best person in, in any room i was ever in and that's the way i always wanted to, to leave my career i shouldn't i shouldn't i never wanted to be the best guy in the room because then you're not learning anything right so i would always want to be the, the worst guy in the room so i could watch the men and women around me excel and learn from them and that's that's what's kept me uh kept me going Man, that's, I mean, I've heard, I've heard other people say that, that similar, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but something to that effect, like I, 
I never started this, you know, this organization, whether it's a nonprofit or I never got into business or military operations or special operations to do um, anything crazy. But out of circumstance, like I've met some really incredible people, um, stayed humble, shut my mouth and and turned on my ears uh, and and listened and observed and shared, you know, what what I've learned over, over the years. I've heard that from, from many people and it doesn't sound like anything different. Right. Right. So, yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's normal people doing amazing things. That's all, that's all history is, is just normal people, average people put in extraordinary circumstances and, and then rising that occasion. And it, it's, a, yeah. it's a beautiful thing to see. So is it back to New York after that? It's back to New York. Back to the Bronx. Back, <laughs> yep. back to the Bronx. Back to the Bronx as, as again the oldest rookie around. You, you leave. You leave the department for a couple of years. People change and like, who's this guy? You know, and uh, you know, welcome up. My partner was still there. He's like, oh, that's the oldest rookie in, in the Bronx. You know, so you know, and and was it really during that time frame because <laughs> op tempo around that time frame was pretty high. Yeah. Um, for the military, right and. It, it wasn't uncommon um, for people to extend or get cross leveled to a different unit right. and and redeploy. Um, so like the yeah the ro- the rotational tempo was was pretty quick. Were there other guys on the force that were also you know guard reserve or, or anything like that? Oh yeah, it, there was there was so many. The the NYPD actually has a military leave desk, and it's, wow. it's staffed by a lieutenant, a couple of sergeants, a bunch of civilian clerks. There is because at that time we were about maybe thirty-two thousand people in the in the NYPD, and I'd say a good ten percent were were in the guard. So at any at any time, you had a lot of people deployed. Like it was sure. it was it was not. I mean, and I, I would give the NYPD this: they did a very good job in supporting us, managing it, making sure. You know, I I I got alerted once. I had to leave like right away. And like, don't worry about it. Let us know. Good luck. Give some orders when you can, and you're gone. So um, the the admin side of it was, was really good. The um, the other side, you know, you, you tried out. You it was a trade off, right? Because I tried out for a couple of specialized units um, that I, I think I was qualified for. Uh, and you know, the first question they'd always ask is, "Are you still in? And are you getting deployed again?" Yeah. And you know, although that's quote unquote illegal. Uh, well, <laughs> I, yeah, I, 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 but you get I it. I, 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 know I, where you're going, I, I, I understand the reason why, like, cause they, they saw my record. They're like, dude, it's like, I was the worst investment the NYPD ever had. <laughs> I really, I mean, it's hilarious, but it, it, it's true. Like I was, you know, I was a cop maybe for 11 years when it's all said and done. Uh, I spent nine years deployed of, 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 of my 20 year career. You know, it's just because of, of, you know, just where I was. So uh, I, I get it why, you know, you couldn't do or they wouldn't they didn't want you because they, they if you wanted to be in the bomb squad, they need you to be in the bomb squad, not yeah. be in the bomb squad overseas. You know, so I get yeah. that. But the, um, no, the support that, that my bosses gave me, the support my my fellow officers gave me um, humbling, to, to say the least, humbling, to say the least. And, and eventually you did make it to Afghanistan. Yeah, we got there. Um, mid, mid two thousands, I think it was 2012, maybe 2013. 
Okay. Uh, got to got to. Got and, to. The, and there was kind of a surge into Afghanistan around that time, if I'm not mistaken. There was, yeah. So, so President Obama decided to do a, you know a surge, quote unquote surge, to get in there, um, you know, to try and stamp out the Taliban or Al Qaeda once and for all. Um, we were assigned to the um, Special Operations Advisory Group, SOAG, and we were yep. link, linked up with the Afghan Special Forces uh, to to assist them, mentor them. You know, and then um, you know, work with them uh, just north of Kabul. So, was there ever a time, like when you, when you, when you got your orders for Afghanistan, being that you had such a an intimate experience with the reason that we were there in the first place? Like, was there ever any thoughts? Like, what was going through your mind once you got boots on ground in Afghanistan? It's like because I'm trying to put myself in your, in your boots at that, at this point, sure. it's like, I was, I was, uh, at ground zero helping clean up rubble fast forward a decade. Now I'm boots on ground. And at that time we'd been there for a decade. Yeah. Right? So yeah. to your point, to your point, like this is going to be long and drawn out. Yeah. And, and little did anybody really know, like that was only like the halfway point. Yeah. You know? So <laughs> So you get boots on ground in Afghanistan. What's your thoughts? You know, you have to. Um, I remember being taught this back in sniper school uh, by by my my mentor, um, you know, and you know, Sergeant Fowler. And he's like, "Look, he's like, you can't let emotion take the better view in in this this profession, right? Because it will ruin you and it will take you down dark paths. It's like every time you pull that trigger, you pull the trigger because you have to." Right, not because you want to, but because you have to. Yeah, I remember him saying, saying, "Tell me that." You, you know, so yeah, the emotion is like, ah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm going to get payback. I'm going to, you know, this is for, for, for Joe. This is for, you know, for Mora. This is for everyone. And, and you, you really have to put that aside, you know, if, if you really don't, you know, because that, that can take it down some dark, dark, deadly paths. Um, sure. But I remember talking to other, like, I remember linking up with a, with an Afghan commando who was fought the Northern Alliance. And we had, and we became very good friends. Actually, we traveled around Iraq, uh, Afghanistan together. And he'd been fighting the Northern, he'd been fighting the Taliban since he was 12. Wow. And, you know, I told him my story. And it was similar. You know, like, he, you know, both of us were, were, were inf inflicted with wounds caused by the same people. Uh, you know, both of us had lost friends to these, the same ideology. Uh, you know, the thing is, he was staying there. You know, Captain Ali. And so we, it was, it was really good. It was really good to, to meet, you know, someone from halfway across the world, you know, from the mountains of the, you know, of Northern Afghanistan who had this, basically the same story you had. Yeah. The same, well, and, you know. and there, there has to be overlap there with, you know, policing in the Bronx because with, with how, or just policing in New York city, right. Um, how chaotic it could get. So like when you clock out in New York city, um, you still live a stone's throw away, right? From from where you're working. Uh, and just like those guys over in Afghanistan, like like they're they're not escaping their full time, you know, chaos right. either. Right. right? So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so you guys you could build a, a really good rapport. Rapport that way. Like you understand being on, on alert twenty four hours a day. You understand, you know, seeing things that you loved destroyed. Um, seeing you seeing areas that you grew up in change, sometimes not for the better. 
uh, you know, your, your investment into that community, you know, being, being destroyed or being changed in a way that, 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 that you, you don't want to see. So yeah, you, and, they, and that's empathy. Uh, you have to, you know, empathy is a huge, huge thing. It gets you inside the mind of a person that you maybe wouldn't know or, or, or have no experience with. So you have to empathize with the folks in the ghetto. You have to empathize with that mother of three kids in the projects trying to make it, you know, trying to make a good life for them. Uh, but, you know, the deck stacked against her from, from her surrounding environment. You empathize with the, the sheikh in, in Iraq, you know, his, his choices. He's in a dilemma. He has two bad choices. You know, either yeah. he sides with you or he sides with Al-Qaeda. Either way, really, he loses, you know. So empathy, you know, was, was a big thing I learned later on in my career. Like, hey, get inside their mind. See the world through their eyes. You know, it doesn't mean you have to, you know, completely buy into what they're, what they're selling. But if you can empathize and see it through the way they see it, that helps your survival. It, when it all comes down to it, you want to, you want to survive. So how, how can I survive? I have to understand how the person across from me is thinking and then adjust my actions, uh, therefore. Sure. So by now, you have a boatload of operational experience. I, 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 have... I, I, had, a great, I had a great travel agent. <laughs> <laughs> great travel agent. <laughs> Do not recommend, one star. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you've, you've been a little bit of everywhere. You've done a little bit of everything. Um, and then your civilian career... Uh, I mean, it, it obviously um, overlaps and there's there's lessons learned you can pull from either side and apply. So fast forward, let's say, because I don't know when you got to Sojitif. Was it 2017 or 18? I think I think it was 17. I want to say it was maybe yes or maybe 18 if we, we we got we got deployed and it was cold it was it was january i think i'm relieving so yeah we were we were attached to sojidif in early 2018 is when uh when my unit got there okay all right so I know how I got there, but how did how did you get there? <laughs> so this is actually this is actually the funniest story out of all of them. So we get alerted, hey, we're going to Kuwait. All right, like oh, okay, Kuwait's not that bad. Who, I, who's we? Who's we? Again, the Saad, my, my special operations detachment. Okay, again. gotcha. So we're back up on on the roster again. This is like our third. Okay. You know, again, the, it goes pretty quick, right? So we, the, the Saads, you know, you're either deployed or getting ready to deploy when you're with the special operations. So, boom, again. Uh, so I remember I was riding in a car, right? I didn't tell, I never told anyone I was getting deployed for like the last week. I didn't want that hammer to hang over everything we did. Sure. So with all my friends, family, I would always tell them, hey, guess what? I'm taking a little trip. So um, I'm driving with, with a friend of mine and, and she's like, so, you know, are you going anywhere? And I think she meant like, are you going anywhere like in the next week trying to make plans? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, actually I'm going to Kuwait. And she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> because the last time I told her and a bunch of friends of mine I was going to Afghanistan, we were sitting in a in a restaurant. I said, "Hey, look, I gotta go." You know, next week, <laughs> and like they broke out crying. I'm like, "Oh God, I don't, I don't want this to happen again." So, like, I'm gonna stop asking this question, right? Yeah. And so, she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, "Don't worry, don't worry." It's like, well, I'm going, I'm going to Kuwait. It's like, I don't. Our weapons are gonna be locked up. They got pools there. They got trees yeah. in the co- It's like it's 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 really. I'm looking. I told. I'm look. I'm kind of looking forward to this. Like it's. They have an Arby's there. They have like a, it's a great setup. It's gonna be fine. 
you know, they got, it's just, it's club med club med in, in, yeah. you know, and, the way I've heard, the way I've heard Kuwait explained was I got sent to war and then ended up in garrison. Right. And I was, believe me, I was all for that. I'm like, <laughs> sign me up, dude. Like I am not looking to get my gun on. I am set. And so I went in, I got a job. I was the NCYC of a, of a, of an Intel cell, which was great. You know, doing, doing my Intel stuff as a senior NCO at that time, I was an E8 and, um, you know, living the dream. And so at that, at that point you're on, you're in Sojidev compound on Arif John, on Arif John, like knee deep and okay. you know, doing, doing that stuff. And there's another Intel group coming in. I know they're bringing a large Intel source with a Sergeant major. I reached out to her, my like, HR major. I understand these are your troops. I fully understand you'll be in charge of your troops. Um, so I walk into the uh, the chief chief uh, master petty officer, um, and I say, hey, 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 boss, uh, you know, you know, Sergeant Major Rodriguez is coming in. That's her group. That's her troops. I'm sure she wants to to lead them. You know, uh, I heard you have a job for me. He's like, yeah, I, I need you to go. Uh, I need you to go up north, like like northern Kuwait. We we have bases there. He's like, no, no. <laughs> He's like, I need you to go to Syria. I'm like, where? He's like, there's an austere base in, in, in Western Syria. Uh, I need you to go there. I'm like, and do what? He's like, just go be a leader. I'm like, wow. <laughs> like, that's, that's pretty broad. He's like, yep, you'll leave in three days. Go go draw your ammo. I'm like, so, so yeah. So that's how, uh, that's how I thought I was, I was going to the jock floor. Like, all right, I'll be like the jock knight. NCYC, you know, some sucky job like that. They're like, no, no, you're going to, you're going to wait. <laughs> and uh, he's like, and you're going to lose some weight too. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, there's not, there's not a lot up there. I'm like, what? <laughs> no idea. I had no idea what was going on. So uh, I got, I got spun up real quick. And um, by yeah, yeah. the difference between Sojidif and Kuwait and yeah. Sojidif and in, in northern Syria, Syria is night and day. I <laughs> did like yeah I didn't know how lucky I was needed. yeah I didn't know how I really how fortunate I, I I got the best job I tell them I got the best job out of everybody like like hands down I did not know it at the time because you never know it at the time sure but um uh, we I first went to KLZ with my main element and I really wanted to stay there because we were building up another intel cell all my guys were there my sergeant major was there it was like a it was like five or six sod guys from my unit up there, you know, which, which is a testament to, you know, to the general saying, Hey, I don't mind these national guard, you know, sod guys that go up and, and be the face of Sujudif forward deployed in such key elements. And then I got told, Hey, you have to go to NLZ. You'll be the only person there from the sod. And I was a little upset about that. You know, like, Oh, you know, I'm leaving my guys, but Hey, you're professional. You go. You go where where you're told to fight, and you, you win where you where you end up. And again, phenomenal. Um, definitely a a great a great um, experience. You know, only because yeah. of you guys. Like it was just the troops there were were just young. They're dedicated. They were they're focused. You know, very very few problems. As as the NCIC of a, of a base, you're thinking, oh my god, what can go wrong? Um, yeah, and, and we did we did have our, our, our you know a few flare ups, but nothing. You know, nothing that that normally wouldn't happen. But for the the majority, the vast majority of of the experience there was just so positive, and the folks were so focused and just so grateful to be there. Yeah, and you know, obviously, right? Some some common some common names here: Will, Rusty, 
um, and more. A freaking dream team, you know. Right. So, <laughs> so we're all organically. We were all. I don't know if Jeremy was from the same unit or not, but he had been in my unit at one point. So, anyways, we were all organically from the same unit, and then cross leveled over to the unit that then got attached to Sojita. Right. So, and it was kind of, I don't know. I'll save that for another podcast, but uh, <laughs> so, so anyways, we we're going together. That was the intent. Right. And we get, we get to Fort Bragg, do the in-processing. They essentially tell us, um, us as in the entire company, uh, which, which is actually a battalion. Uh, so anyways, they tell us like, Hey, you are, plus x amount of people than what we actually are required to have right so instantly after pre-mob and, and going to brag and doing the fort brag stuff um before i did you go through fort brag before you went over or did you guys just go we uh we actually yeah we, we went through we went through brag i okay. train up okay. there you know and then uh you know, got, got our equipment there and whatnot. Yeah. So we, we, yeah, we, so we moved that to brag. We got down there to brag and then they're like, you guys have too many people. And then this is my, you know, historical perception of what happened. Um, take it for what it's worth. Anybody, <laughs> anybody that's listening, they took the organic unit, the people that weren't cross-leveled for the most part, and then sent them all to by rain. Right. Where, as expected, it was very nice. Right. Right. I'm glad I didn't go to Bahrain. Sure. That was not what I was hoping for. <laughs> so, I'm glad you didn't too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it eventually, it it pan out in, uh, in my favor, at least. So we land in Kuwait. The long story short is the other three, uh, Jeremy, Rusty, and Will, they're going up there to where you're at in northern Syria. And then... I am assigned to headquarters in Kuwait, which at that time, like shit, the people I volunteered to come here with are all going, not, you know, not yeah. that I didn't have other friends. Cause I don't mean it in that way. Right. But, but the group, the literal group of people that you're we're all going together, three of them <laughs> right, are going, going where I would prefer to go. Sure. So, so anyways, as you know, um, so I spent, I don't know four months, five months, mostly in Kuwait with the exception of, uh, going up to, to the NLZ. Um, and I think I was probably up there, uh, combined less than a month, but greater than three weeks. And me and Will were doing the math one right. time. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyways, and, and as you know, um, those guys wanted me up there. Oh, well, I, I did too. I and and you did too. Yeah. We, we and, and I, I definitely recall, <laughs> I remember the emails of trying to get people up there. Um, and then people that wanted to work. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize that part. It's people that yeah. wanted to work yeah, we'll, because we'll, everybody we'll work. wanted to go there. Right. Right. So was, uh, was master Sergeant Rogers part of your sod? He, um, Kevin Rogers. Yes. Yes, he was. He was, I think, the NSOIC of KLZ, or he was, yeah, the job chief of KLZ. He definitely was. So, I only know him from my limited time going through there. But I remember, like, so I, I had 
what was a legit reason to go up to where you guys were at. Right. And then, and then there were other people that were. Yeah. Tourists. Tourists. (laughs) So I I land at KLZ um, and it was during the daytime. We step off the back of the, I think that one was a C-130. So step off the back of the C-130 and within minutes, there's a Toyota Land Cruiser flying down from the top of the hill um, and out jumps Kevin Rogers. And he has like a list or a packet or something in his hand. And he looks at me and another guy and he's like, you and you go like to the tent. And, and he told the other three, which were an E8, yeah. an, o, an O4, yeah. and then a British like major right. is like, you guys need to get back on the fucking plane. Yeah, yeah. That's, Kevin, <laughs> that's Kevin, all right. Yeah. I was just like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very, very blunt. Yeah. Like, Kevin did not give a fuck. <laughs> he gave zero fucks. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 I mean, I appreciate that. But the, the giving zero fucks. But there was like no hesitation. Like step. We weren't even off of the runway. Yeah. Like, we're walking to the PAX terminal. It's yeah. like, you, you, and you get back on the fucking plane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then, no shit, they were sent to a transit tent. Yep. And they were on the next plane yeah. out. Yep. Like, whoa. So, for me, as a, I was an E5 at that point, I was just like, did that really just happen? Yeah. I remember, like, I almost couldn't believe it. Yeah. Okay. I remember emailing Kev, you know, I, I you know, you know, I get this guy Rooney coming in asset you know definitely definitely a plus one for my group you know he's coming here i got a little clearances in he's like oh no problem tom he's like you got it no worries like, yeah. <laughs> like, he's he, he needs to get here like he got it no worries yeah so I've, i'm always appreciative <laughs> of uh guys that were up there on on the receiving end um like trying to get me up there because that was like i volunteered. go back if i were to wind back to my first deployment there was a staff sergeant who told me he's like you know, sometimes you've got to volunteer for all of the missions, including the shitty ones. Right. And then eventually you'll get a good one. And I volunteered for everything in Kuwait. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, so when the demand came to send somebody up there, in my mind, as far as I know, like, I don't know if there was much thought that went into it, like who, who could potentially go, which was a, a very... Um, and, and my, my experience, you know, limited experience up there. Good. It was a good experience for sure. Um, very opening to see what was going on up there in, in Northern Syria and what you guys were doing, what the SDF was doing, yeah. um, trying to, you know, deter ISIS and, and things like that. It's just a crazy environment. I, I tell people that much like you probably tell people when you, en- when you enlisted, like you don't know where this ride's going to fucking take you. No. No, you really like, don't. It's it's amazing. It's you know some rides, you know some some folks go through careers and, and they you know it's just a certain track and, and they're you know it's it's not mundane but it's very kind of vanilla and but you know given just the, the happiness of, of history and the time that we were in, we just got exposed to that. Like if you were in the army in the seventies, this would have not have happened, right? Yeah. The army in the seventies, you went to Germany or Korea, and and that was it. And you had a great time because that's where I went to. I went to Germany, right? So. You joined the army. You went to Germany, Korea, and that was it. And you you went to your reforger exercises, your team spirit exercises, or your bright star exercises. Your exercises were, were your big, you know, 
kind of cap thing, you know, Cobra Gold, all that. That was the 70s. You know, the 80s, you got some more money. Maybe you got to go to Grenada. Maybe not. Uh, it just the time we were in just happened to be that time of history where, you know, your country needed you quite a, quite a, quite a lot. Um, and just just through no through no fault of your own, you were on the uh, on the fast track. And and through all this time, right, say 70s, 80s, 90s, up until now. Right. So you you obviously have a long uh, military career, um, public service, but also, you know, from after meeting you and and at least, you know, being friends with you online and things like that, you're obviously uh, kind of a history buff. Um, you are a man of faith as well. Yes. Um, I, I don't know if you journal or anything like that, but I do know some of the stuff that you you share on on Facebook is book worthy for sure in my opinion um has that always been something like reading writing you always like that stuff yeah i I, you know i I grew up you know i'm I'm a survivor of 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 about 14 years of catholic education so they (laughs) um you know they hammered in the basics in you you know how to how to you know the, the written word um you know again growing up without the internet you read a lot of books uh you know you just you, you try you, it's tough to explain you know the things that, that we, we've gone through and i've always growing up i always marveled at watching older veterans trying to explain what they did um and the way they always did it and, and the way they always did it was always in a humble way like you know you, you, I, I had a lot of friends who were vietnam vets you know and so that that was kind of my my my, my first commander was a vietnam vet Okay. In the National Guard. So I still had, you know, my, my, my operations sergeant in lowering surveillance in 1993 was a alert from Vietnam. You know, and, and I looked at these guys with awe, with absolute awe and reverence, because I knew what they, reading the books, I knew what they went through. I knew how they were treated. You know, I knew the, the obstacles they went through, the crucible they went through, you know, and that, 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 that hero's journey of going through all that and still coming at, at the other end with humanity and what that would take what you know the strength it took to go through all of that all they went through and it still had that humanity at the end was what i what i always like sought to, to be wouldn't that be great if that was if i could do that um and, and you'll be careful what you, what you wish for sure um but you know it just you know the, their stories need to be told you know, and, and the stories of the people I work with need to be told as well. So you, you never pass up opportunity to, to say just how great, you know, the, the men and women I work with were, you know, again, you, Josh, Rusty, Will, Jeremy, you know, we're right the bat, boom. You know, I, I spend every day next, next to Josh in a connex, you know, yeah. and never once did I dread going to work. Never once did I, you know, did I have a pit in my stomach. Oh, I got to go work with with rusty today or uh, you know josh is on my nerves today never happened you know and the only time that, that that other didn't happen is when i was a sniper in somalia with with my with my um my spotter ron who i picked up you know cold um we spent every day together in a in a you know in a hole or in, in, a, in a small you know enclosure for six months he was a 19 year old e3 you know i was the old guy at 23 as an e5 um never once did i i dread going to work and once that happens you know you're you're with special people 
you know, and it wasn't because of me, it was because of them. Like I work with real special people throughout my life. Um, I'm, I'm blessed for that. I, I really, I really am. It wasn't really me. Cause like, like I said, I was never the best guy in the room ever. Um, you know, I was lucky. Maybe I knew a few things, but you know, I was never the best guy in the room and, uh, I, and I'm better up for that. Well, you know, I, I think, uh, with what you're saying, as far as, <clears throat> you know, like your mentors, uh, being Vietnam vets, right. That's, that's where you fell in line. Um, and to think to yourself, like, man, I wish, you know, I could be like this person and emulate, you know, transferring down the knowledge and the, the leadership skills. Um, I think you, you most certainly put rounds on, on target with that. Um, because I know all those names that you dropped and more, um, really appreciate, you know, your, uh, your leadership and uh, guidance, um, from the, the time that they were with you and the limited time that I was up there with you. Um, very, uh, very much privileged in a, so in, in, in a way, you know, and you, sir, Sergeant, I call you, sir. <laughs> I, I call everybody, sir. That's so, all right. You know, it's, uh, I'm retired now. It's all good. I'm old. So, I'm retired. So, uh, but you, you like never cease to amaze me. So I'm just going to spitball a few things out here. Now, after that deployment, I took a book home with me. Uh, it was on the commander's reading list, which there was actually a commander's reading list on yep. that deployment. Yes, it were. Um, and that book was the complexity um, and organizational blinders of the SOCOM design way. Yes. And I was, I picked the book up on the deployment. I was reading it after I came home and I'm looking at, you know, the honorable mentions yeah. in this book. And I'm like, Holy shit. I know this guy. <laughs> Man, it looks familiar. So, what the, fraud. What's, what's that fraudster doing in here? <laughs> so what was your, what was your involvement with the book? So, um, so with the SOD, with, with my special operation detachment global, we would, we were direct support to SOCOM down in Tampa. And part of SOCOM is what's called the joint special operation university. And it's um, a place for, for higher military education. So okay. you learn, you know, com you know, you learn a lot of, you know, master's level, you know, thinking, history, uh, the way you do things. It's just, it's a good think tank as well. And they were starting this idea about design thinking. Uh, and it was a way to look at wicked problems now wicked problems isn't a boston slang as in wicked good wicked problems are problems that are so complex that only one solution will not affect it you, you need multiple solutions to affect a wicked problem sure and this is this is way out of my my wheelhouse like i am <laughs> i am a bolt action guy okay simple you know reliable <laughs> but i am bolt action i didn't even have a degree at that time they sent me down to this design thinking course so i'm like all right, I'll bite. I don't mind, you know, and I'm in this course and there's a guy named Charlie Black, former Marine uh, who worked in SOCOM and a couple of the really smart people in the room. And design thinking actually played off on my years of the classical education that both Catholic school and liberal arts kind of fed into me. Because if you think about it, the military is very mathematical and engineer focused for good reason. Right. Sure. West Point was built to produce engineers to build America. So they're very right angle people. They, they need processes. They need step by step things. And that's a good thing. 
right? You want that in a pilot. You want that when you're doing a, 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 a JMPI on a parachutist or a paratrooper. You, you want a good process like that. I was always kind of like, hey, you know, you say outside the box, that's an overused term, but hey, there, there's multiple ways to do this, you know, and free thinking. And as a small leader, that's what that's really a small leader does is he, he or she thinks on their feet and problem solves at that moment. And that was police work. That was reconnaissance. That was all those things. And it it fed into design thinking. Hey, let's look at this problem differently and let's do, do a wacky hit on it. You know, mm -hmm. um, and that's really and then so I took the course, I went back did the advanced course and I remember Charlie asked me my background. And again, it, it the law enforcement played a role into it because I brought a different perspective into into the, the way design thinking was, was approached because it was all, you know, they were all military people, right? They're all pure military people, 20 years, Naval, Naval Academy grads, you know, 40, you know, 35 years in the Marine Corps, blah, blah, blah. And like, hey, you have your feet in both worlds. Again, you have a different perspective. Um, why don't you come on board with us and, you know, show us, you know, kind of how you think as a street cop, as a person dealing with complexity outside the military, because complexity happens in the inner cities, right? Crime is probably the biggest wicked problem we have. You know, how do you solve crime? There's a multiple ways of doing it and not, and not all of them work. So that's kind of, I got into that, you know, they forced me to go get my degree so I can be hired on as a, as an instructor down there. And, uh, you know, I, again, I got to work with people who were way smarter than me, Dr. Dave Ellis, you know, De uh, Commander Dave Sears from, from, from Dev Group, uh, Charles mm -hmm. Black, you know, all these guys who were big thinkers as well. And not like they were esoteric, it's just they just thought differently. You know, hey, let's, let's, let's solve this problem this way. Have you thought about doing this way? A crazy idea. Um, no, I didn't think about that. Well, let's try it. So, we, you know, having te teaching that to a military class was, was, was very interesting because it, it was almost liberating for them. They didn't have to use PowerPoint. We made them draw pictures. You know, so we tapped into that left brain, right brain thing, the creativity and getting those juices flowing. Yeah. And, you know, th this book, um, yesterday was National Book Day. Um, I grabbed five different books <clears throat> that I've read over the last, you know, few years or whatever. And I grabbed this one out of there um, as a, a recommendation for people to read. And I, I don't know if you can even pick this book up anywhere. I'll be honest. Um, I'd have to look and see if it's even available online or, or how people would even acquire it. But with that being said, my, my review of it just the other day, um, on why people should read it. Cause it does, it like just challenges your thinking when looking at something. So like, if, you know, and obviously this is heavy on military operations and, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, human, human resources or human intelligence, like, you know, working with different people. Uh, but, you know, from my civilian job at that time, at least, um, and, and coming up as we talked about before the podcast, sure. <laughs> but it was uh, like quality and process improvement, which a lot of that was looking at things differently to solve a problem. Uh, in this, this book, I would recommend it to people. Like it's not an incredibly long book. Right. Uh, but like, if you just need a something, a catalyst, if you just need a catalyst for thinking outside of the box, especially if you're in the military, because then you'll have a better, you know, understanding of, you know, some of the terminology and things that are in it, but, sure. but, uh, man, solid book. So spitballing on another thing here, 
<laughs> so I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling through podcast that I follow that I, I followed for years. And once again, like, like I'm a, scrolling through podcasts. Like, I follow Marcus Luttrell's podcast. Like a bad, like, like a bad penny. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, there he is again. <laughs> so, okay. How, how did you wind up that? How'd you wind up on it? Uh, you're right. Uh, <laughs> I, I asked myself that same question. Uh, so again, like I, 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 I was friends with Dave Sears. So Dave Sears was, was, was a commander. Um, Oh five. He was in depth group. Uh, Dave Sears, phenomenal guy, phenomenal seal. Um, you know, was on the the Jessica Lynch rescue. Okay. Um, just just a, and I'd work with him in Sox South as well. So but we we go back to like two thousand, you know, two thousand eight. We'd work together, so we'd known each other, and then we're training and working together at J Sal. And so he gives me a call. He's like, "Hey, Tom." He's like, "Uh, how you doing?" I'm like, "Oh, fine. What's going on, Dave?" He's like, "Yeah, I, I gave Marcus Luttrell your name uh, for, for a podcast." <laughs> I'm like, Dave, are you sure you're calling it the right time O'Hare? <laughs> like, 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 because I had seen Dave's podcast. I'd seen Dave, you know, on, on, on his podcast. Like, are you sure you got the right guy? It's like, yeah, you're the right guy. He's like, stop, stop, Josh. I'm like, hey, all right. What's your thing? Yeah, I think you're pulling my leg. Sure enough, you know, uh, so Marcus had asked him, hey, do you know anybody that, you know, could fit this bill that they'll be, you know, crazy yeah. to talk and i i told uh, what i told marcus like what do you guys run you ran out you ran out of people you're you going, you're going to the, the deep bench He's like nah like we're we're tracking you like it was a matter of time um so mark i mean i was just again humbling you know i read his book like you did i saw the movie yeah you know, and you see the, the 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 caliber of people that he he interviews like sure. like like you compare that like look man we're apples and oranges here dude like <laughs> like you, you got you know, you got dave sears out there you know you got a bunch of you know, medal of honor winners you have you know, legends up there then hey here's tom Wire from the bronx like what um but what what just what a great family like i got to talk to him his wife i mean just engaging funny you know you just again humbling and just a it was a great experience to talk to him and his wife um you know about about again Another guy that that again, like we said before, we're just two guys talking at a bar, both same experiences, yeah. like the same. And he was more interested, like in the NYPD stuff. He was really interested in that, you know. So it wasn't like this Navy SEAL talking down to you at, at all. Just he he, you were a brother to him, you're a peer, and he was just as interested in you as you were with him. And uh, so yeah, a great a great experience. Yeah, and his book. Um, let's see, I don't, I don't want to throw out the wrong year, but I can say with confidence, um, first book I I've ever read cover to cover. Um, cause I hate, I hated reading, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, and I read his book before I even liked reading. Right. Um, I didn't really like start reading until I was about 30. So, so anyways, and I, and I know you, you enjoy reading, yep. um, and in literature and, and learning, but, uh, you know, moving on to one of my, my other R's here real quick is running, right? And, and I use running as kind of like a metaphor for exercising. Sure. Um, but in the literal sense, like post-retirement for sure, like when I think of retirement, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> right? I, I think of people like they want to go, they want to go see the Grand Canyon. They want to sit on the beach and I'm not saying that you don't want to do those things, sure. but when I see Tommy retire, he's running Ironmans and 
Tommy's joining jujitsu. Yeah. Um, right. So like, like, you know, I'm not a runner. I'm a guy who runs. Let's, let's, it's, it's a big difference. And yeah, you know, I've done some Ironmans, but you know, the guy who finishes last in the Ironman is still called an Ironman. All right. My, my favorite race was Maryland, the, the Ireland, uh, Ironman Maryland, where I finished with a minute and 15 seconds left. <laughs> I was the, the second to last person to cross that line. Um, and the year before, I had to drop out because my knee had blown up. I, I, tore, I tore my meniscus in Syria. So I spent a year actually at Fort Bragg recovering. Oh, okay. Um, so, and they told me, you know, life change, you know, you're going to, you know, you won't be able to do this. You won't, you won't be able to do that. I'm like, you're telling a guy with four limbs, I can't do things. Meanwhile, there's a kid there with three limbs with only you one limb. More wrong. Right. Yeah. Like, like you're telling me the wrong thing. Cause I'm looking at a kid with, with one limb doing stuff. Right. So don't tell me I have to change my life. Um, so I immediately went out and started to train you know, a bit harder in this. Um, so, yeah. So I, what, what, so when you retire, right. It, it's a drastic change. Right, it's a physical change as well. Um, a lot of cops, a lot of a lot, a lot of soldiers, when they retire, the, the change is so drastic that there's a physiological effect on them, and a lot of cops die within five years of retirement because it was their identity. Yeah. And I was told this as a rookie, even before I joined, by a senior cop. He's like, Tom, don't make this your identity. Do not make this who you are. All right, make it what you do, because eventually this will end, and you're going to take that uniform off, and you better like the guy who was wearing that uniform, because you're stuck with him for the rest of your life. So don't make it your identity, you know. So, and that was a big change because I, I left the military and the police coming on the same time frame. So that was a huge step, you know. Yeah. And like, oh my God, like, am I going to kill myself? What's going to happen? Am I going to die of a heart attack? And so I sat down and said, what did you miss the most about those experiences? that you had for 33 years of your life. And it boiled down to, you know, you miss the camaraderie, you miss being around like-minded people who do crazy things. You miss the challenges, the physical challenges that, that you had to do, you know, and, and you miss the pain. You actually do miss the pain because pain is a crucible you have to go through, you know, to one, prove you're alive and then prove to yourself, you can still do things. And so I'm like, all right, where can I find that on the outside world? Um, <laughs> and sure enough, there, there it is. Um, yeah. Iron Man's and Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Right. You know, Gracie <laughs> Jiu-Jitsu Warwick, you know, Iron Man's CrossFit. And like, again, definitely not the, the definitely not the, the, the best guy in the room. Um, but I, I remember thinking, you know what? Like, it's such, it's such a gift to be able to do this, right? Like uh, 53 years old, I got I got a list of too many guys and, and that that aren't around anymore that wish they could mm -hmm. do this. So like even if I do this poorly, you know I'm still I'm I'm doing it. You know and and that that keeps you humble right away because you you just you you just are right. You just you're not you're not great. I'm never going to win the ADCCs. You know I, I may I may do well in a tournament here and there, uh, but what I am going to do is is be better than the than the person who walked into that room. And that's my only goal is. Can I beat the Tom O'Hare that walked into this room after I leave it? And uh, and then you're being around younger people. You know, it's 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 great because um, it, it gives you it gives you energy. You know, they treat you as a peer. You know, yeah. you, you want to be treated like you don't want to 
you know, there's a 24 year old, you know, 23 year old in the, in the room. I, I want him to see me as a peer, not as a, some senior guy. I, it's an honor to, to, for him to see me as a peer because he's such a high level practitioner. Um, you know, same thing with, 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 with Chelsea and Gabby. You know, they see me as a peer and that's an honor for me. Not, you know, I'm not some mentor at all. I'm learning from them. And that's a great thing to do is take a step back. You know, you, you were, you're a master sergeant this and whatnot and you wrote this. And, hey, go back to learning. You'll learn from that 20-year-old on how to do a lead lock. You'll learn from that 23-year-old on how to do a, an arm bar. Uh, and that, that resets your clock a little bit. Yeah, and, you know, from a, a different perspective on that, in terms of uh, military service, right? I'm, I've been in for like 14 years. Right. Um, so if you chalk that up, be, you know, I'm beyond my halfway point. Right. If I, if I do 20, which I intend on doing. Good. Um, I remember coming in to the military, you know, E2, E3, my squad leaders, you know, they were 14, 15 years in, like they were in their, you know, mid thirties, maybe 40 or something. Uh, and they were like kind of the old guys. Right. Right. And that, and in terms of like military, like that's, Oh yeah. That is, that is old. No, it's old. Yeah. It's hard to like, I don't want to say it's hard, but yeah, like I'm, I'm kind of the old guy now. Yeah. Right. So when, when the uh, younger person comes in and uh, I don't know, they've got young person energy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Great. (laughs) And and I'm still young, right? I'm only 34, but, but yeah, when you get somebody who's, 20 or or 19 or whatever coming in um with that young person energy it's very refreshing uh especially right now with like recruiting and and things like that that are just on a on a slump yeah but uh yeah it's like surrounding your people surrounding yourself with uh different people um you know people that might not think like you so putting yourself in these clubs or environments you know where there's like-minded people don't get me wrong but yeah but yeah just like the military not everybody thinks like no. you're, all, you're all there, but you don't think the same. No. And right. So and, and it keeps your mind fresh and, and uh, it's great networking. It's great for relationships and, and things like that. Um, so I, I think you're, you're definitely on track with, with doing things like that, you know? Yeah. It's like you say, it's great. Like, that's the great thing about, about a, a jujitsu room is you have, we have such a cross section of society in there. And it's a lot like the military. Not everyone is, is a cookie cutter in that, in that room. You know, we, it's a vast array of, you know, everything from, from high school, your wrestling champions to chess club members and everything in between. And they're, and they're all, they're all equal because we're all working for the same goal, you know? And so a lot, a lot you, you realize a, a lot more, you know, brings us together than, than tears us apart. You know, if I remember we had a, a Hodger Gracie come in and give a, a seminar and he's like, if more people did jujitsu, um, it'd be a better world because you, you begin to, you respect the person across from you, no matter what, who they are, how they think, it doesn't matter. You're there to respect each other in, in physical combat. And that's, you know, that, that was a great thing. You know, you shake hands before you shake and bump fists before and after the role. Um, and if more of society did that, it'd be a better place probably. Yeah. That's as a spectator on, on combat sports, I've, I've followed, you know, UFC and strong, strike force and you know different mma for i don't know as, as long as i can really remember yeah um and that was something that was always like man you see these two guys 
or girls now, you yeah. know, uh, like step in the cage, pretty much try to kill each other, yep. you know, uh-huh. from, from, the, from the looks of it. And then they're hugging at the end. After, yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. It, it's, it's mind blowing. You like, and literally like even in the room, like a person can choke you to death. Like you were in a position where I, you can get choked to death. Right. And it's up to you to tap. So what is, is it teaches you humility every single day because every day you're going to lose. Right. Um, and as, 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 as the great Gracie said, you know, you either win or you learn. Right. So, and you have to be humble enough to know, Hey, all right, I, I made a mistake here. I, I, I'm learning something. I'll tap out. And you respect the other person for, for giving you their hardest. I remember before a tournament match once, um, I was uh, I, a fella had watched me fight Gee, and he was like, "Wow, who is that guy out there? He's 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 great. He's he's so old. He's out there fighting and whatnot." And it turned out I was going to fight him in no gi. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, I can't do this. I'm like, what do you mean? He was like, maybe in his thirties. His son was there. He's like, I, I I can't fight. I'm like, well, I can't fight you. I'm like, well, why not? He's like, well, I outweigh you, and and you're older. I'm like, dude. Like this is jujitsu, man. I'm here on my own free will. We're gonna fight, yeah. Right? We're gonna roll. We're gonna sweat, right? You're gonna give me 100. percent I'm gonna give you 100 percent because I respect you for that, you know. And we had a really good match. It was a really long, hard match. You know, he got me in, in a good. He was a, a great leg lock guy, so um, you know, he got me in, in, in a good, a good leg lock at the end. His son was there, and he's like, "Man, that was that was probably the toughest match I've ever had." I'm like, "It's because you gave 100 percent, like, and that's what I would want from you." So, it's um, it's that respect that you have from your, your opponent. He's there to, to give you hundred percent. You're there to take it. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a crazy di- di- dynamic. That is, it's a great dynamic. You know, and, and one of the other things, which I know we've talked about before um, that just like Tommy never ceases to amaze me on, on what he's doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, I'm, um, I probably scrolling through my news feed at some time and I'm like, there goes master Sergeant O'Hare jumping out of an airplane <laughs> and not, not just like once, like, yeah, you like we, frequently. So talk, talk about that a little bit. So the round canopy parachute team, which you can find on, on online, uh, rcpt.org is a 503, a 501 C nonprofit organization based in Palatka, Florida. Uh, made up of uh, former paratroopers, current paratroopers, complete civilians. So anyone can go there and learn to jump. So it was it was, it was set up to um, to help honor the greatest generation of our, our World War II veterans that jumped in Normandy, and also jumped into Market Garden, you know, and uh, the other airborne, airborne operations. And we, um, you know, they make a pilgrimage to to Normandy every year to jump. Uh, pilgrimage to the Netherlands to jump to keep that memory alive. We do that to honor um, all veterans now. So unfortunately, we're losing a lot of our World War II vets uh, right now. So it's now it's we're, we're honoring Korean War vets, um, paratroopers or not, you know, or Vietnam sure. War vets. So we'll have, we have two operations a year, um, one in in March and one in October. The one in March is to honor mostly World War II veterans or Korean War veterans, and then the one in October we we, we honor um, our, our 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 Vietnam vet, vet, veteran brothers. We bring them down, and it, it's just a great organization. It's a very safe. We are all we're all you know certified jump masters, riggers, FAA certified pilots. Uh, we 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 jump according to the the current SOPs coming out of Fort Benning, but we are a civilian group. We run a jump school, 
So if you are a complete civilian, no military history whatsoever, we bring you in, we train you up, we get you safe, and we get you jumping. And we're fortunate enough to have a C-47 that actually dropped paratroopers into Normandy. So you get on that plane and you hook up and you're seeing what they saw. You're hearing what they heard, you know, and it, it sends chills kind of down, down your back the first time you do it. Even the last time you do it, it doesn't matter when you do it. Um, you're hooking up to the same anchor cable, anchor line cable that they, that they hooked up to as well. So that, that piece of history is physically right there. Someone hooked up to that, that cable and jumped into the night into, into France to save, to save the world. Uh, and that's, you know, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. I mean, and from, from a distance, right. Like following you online and then, and then following, uh, round canopy, um, very cool. Looks like a very cool organization. I mean, that's the, what they're doing in terms of, uh, paying homage to, uh, veterans, world war II veterans, um, and, and getting involved, uh, with, helping veterans yeah well, i mean we we've, we've saved lives i i you know bill markham the president has, has told me he's like we've probably saved five lives five guys have come up to him and say hey if it wasn't for this group i probably would have ended myself you know because it's it's not just the jumping it's it's the hanging around it's, it's all the cool things about the military without the bs all right yeah. so it's like it's all it's all the the, the, the jaw jacking the the fellowship afterwards the hooking someone up that you just met it's putting your your life in someone's hands like i am when, when, when I'm a jump master, you're, you're, you're entrusting in me your safety, right? And, and I may just met you right there and then, but it doesn't matter. I'm your, you're, you're my number one priority, who, who, you know, whoever you are. And I'm going to make sure you have, a, you have a good, safe jump. And that you, you, you begin to realize those are the things you missed about the military, that camaraderie, that, that trust, that exhilaration, that's, you know, doing something a little out of the ordinary um, and then doing it for a good cause. So, uh, yeah, it, it's gotten bigger. We've we, we sponsored a NASCAR a NASCAR vehicle that's won a couple of races. Um, everybody's gearing up to go over to, to to Normandy next year for the 80th anniversary of of the jump there. But it's just a good place for veterans, and we have veterans that come down that don't even jump; they just hang around. And really, it's it's for that week or that few days they they're around their own kind. You know, no matter who or what you are, uh, you know, it, it's it's as diverse as the military was. And you come in and we have SF guys next to next to medics, next to truck drivers, next to Air Force folks. It doesn't matter. You know, you're, we're all out and we're all just having a good time and we want to you know, keep that going. Yeah. The, the, the common theme I always get from for sure from veterans, but other people is that sense of like camaraderie and uh, lineage that goes in there, too. Yeah. Um, Right. And then kind of passing the torch to the next generation and guiding, guiding them through whatever well, obstacle or hand um, they've been dealt in life. So, I mean, that's just a, a very common theme between people who serve their community and serve their country. Um, and then recently, and I'll, I'll let you speak on, on what you can of this, uh, Jim Martin. He was part of that organization. Is that correct? Yeah, Jim Peewee. Yeah, Jim Peewee Martin was um, one of our, our definitely our, our honorary members. He, um, you know, 101st Tacoa, you know, a Tacoa original. So, you know, the Bandit Brothers, the whole nine yards. He was down to Tacoa. He jumped in Normandy, jumped in the Market Garden. Uh, he was, you know, the, the face of what one of the last last surviving members of of the 101st 
uh, originals, the Dakotas. And, you know, getting, get, you know, sitting there and talking to him, you know, and again, like him and, and, it's, and it's, you know, Dan McBride and, and Vince Ferranza, and you talk to them. When they tell a war story, you shut up. Yeah. Right? It doesn't matter what you did. Like when, when Dan McBride, Lorestan says, on my first combat jump, that's all he had to say. And he doesn't say it, again, aggressively or with, like, these guys were a mixture of pride and humility that was, that's a lost, it's a lost art. He would just be calmly saying, yeah, when I first jumped, my, my first combat jump, I jumped with exposed grenades. But the shock was so hard that the grenades would come loose and their pins would fall out and they would blow up below us. So on my second combat jump, I put them in my pockets. And you're sitting there like, holy shit. This guy just talked about two combat jumps. Like it was like cutting the grass. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, one of the greatest honors was um, I got the jump master – uh, a bird called 3X uh, for, for Pee Wee's, for Jim Martin's 100th birthday. 3X was the very first aircraft that breached French airspace for the, for the invasions. It was the lead aircraft of the airborne invasion. So, okay. there, so there I am, you know, leading, leading a stick out or pushing a stick out before I go out. And on the ground is Jim Martin watching me do this, pretending to be him. In the plane is Vince Baranza. Who was in the hundred first on the Battle of Bulge, you know, Purple Heart, Silver Star, and he's watching me do it, and I'm like, it doesn't get better than this. Like I'm watching two guys who are icons who did this for real, and and they're they're watching me like like kids watching you know baseball game, um, you know, just the 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 honor that was to to salute Vince before going out the out the bird, and then ask me afterwards, hey, how how'd I do? It's like not bad, kid, not bad, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, um, you know, I'm pretending to be them, you know, so they, they, they tell you never meet your heroes because you'll be disappointed, but not not my heroes. And rewind to 1988. If someone would have told you what you just said, you your thought probably would have been you're out no, of your mind. There's, there's, no way. No way. It's, that's not going to happen. You you and that's you know, that's the hand of God. You know, you, you don't know your future. You know, the best thing you can do is, is, is do the best you can and see where, see where it takes you, you know, and, uh, and be grateful for every experience that you have, because that is a, you're a unique experience of one and, and you and know that you're lucky to do that. Right. And, and, and grasp that grasp, grasp the, the gravitas and the importance of that, that time that you're in, because you know it, you know, when you see it, you know it and you want to hold on to it forever. You know, and so you, you grasp that as, as and, and and be grateful for that. You know, that's those are those are those are special times. You know, um, and you know, it, it, perspective with age is always a good thing. Um, I was just outside before the the podcast. I was outside, you know, doing what old guys, old retired guys do, watering my lawn. You know, <laughs> doing that. Um, and I was pulling pulling crabgrass. A big crabgrass problem. It was hot. I got lots of, lots of crabgrass in the, in the dirt. I'm pulling the crabgrass. Like, oh, this sucks. You know, there's so much crabgrass. You know, I'm, I'm pulling it. My back hurts. And, and then I stop and I'm like, you know what? Uh, take a step back there, Tom. It's like, you know what you have? You have first world problems. Yeah. That's what I had. I had first world problems. I have crabgrass in my yard because I have a yard. Right. I have a yard because I own the house. Right. My back hurts because I was rolling in jujitsu yesterday with a 24 year old. Right. Those are first world problems. I ain't got no problems. You know, looking back, like 
I know guys who have problems and girls who have problems. Uh, I'm lucky enough not to have those. You know, so, you know, check yourself. Yeah, crabgrass is an issue. It ain't a problem. All right, yeah, your, your knees hurt. That's an issue, not a problem. You know, um, and, and that, that, that keeps you kind of on, on the straight and narrow a little bit. You know, slap, slap some reality back in your face. Even, even, at, even at the age of 53, you're never too old to learn. <laughs> yeah, and the, the term first world problems, I've, I've thrown that around numerous times. Um, and I, th- I think a lot of veterans probably do as well, or, or you know, prior law enforcement or first responders and um, EMTs, which I mean... <laughs> <laughs> another another thing that Tommy I just found out the other day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah, I uh yeah, that's <laughs> I, I know the mayor in town, right? The mayor's like, Tom, I need some help. You gotta do something. I can make you a cop. Like, no, no, Jesse, I don't want to be a cop. I don't want to be on any boards. I don't want to go into politics. He's like, Can you can you be an EMT? I'm like, I can do that, right? That 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 I could do. And then um you know, for the first time in my life, I'm actually helping people, you know, that I, I actually like and that like me, you know, and, and I'm, yeah. helping, I'm, I'm literally helping my neighbors. Like it all comes back to, you know, yeah, I'm trying to save the city. We're out there fighting the war on terror. You know, I'm serving quote unquote America in general. This is actually one of the best jobs, you know, that I have. I'm, I'm helping a person two two doors down from my house. You know, I'm helping the person that works in, you know, CBS you're actually helping folks that you see in church you see yeah. them you know you, you were there in their worst moment so um you're very rewarding in that yeah you know the the one time we, we live in a small town um and there's a volunteer uh fire department out here and one time we called you know i had to call 911 one of our kids was having some problems breathing right uh, we didn't it was the middle of the night. We didn't know what the hell to do. Right. Um, and this was our, th- our third kid. So it's like, wow. this is a new, this is a new experience. We yeah. don't, don't know this one. And uh, the people that showed up, right. Were one of the people that work at, at the bank, right. Which is a small town. Everybody knows the bank. Sure. Um, and we, we knew the people that showed up, right. right. The other one was uh, one of my oldest son's friends, dad. Right. And they, they play on the same soccer team together. Um, so that that sense of community uh, or, or serving others in your community is is very fulfilling, um, no matter what capacity, you know, you do it at, whether it's holding the door open for someone. Yeah. Uh, volunteering to be a, an EMT or on the fire department or, you Co- know, doing nonprofit work or whatever. Yeah. Coaching kids, nonprofit work like you got skin in the game, like it, your, your community, you're your area should be so important that you're willing to invest into that community by any way possible. You know, we, we aren't, we, we aren't solitary creatures. You know, we survived the frontiers. We survived, you know, you know, our, our birth, our, you know, the, the colonies by, by banding together in small groups. It wasn't large. Like America wasn't built on this large overarching scape that, you know, Europe was, we weren't, we weren't a kingdom. We were small towns in new England. We were small, you know, small towns in Georgia. It was, local militias that came out that fought the British. It wasn't the, the American army that came out and fought the British. It was folks from a place called Lexington, of folks, yeah. folks from Concord, locals that came out and that, that's the building blocks. So, you know, you, you invest, your community should be worth investing into. You have skin in the game. 
know, yeah, and, and exactly. it's, it's very rewarding. So I, again, I work with some great people. I work with, again, these are just normal. Again, we have, we have a person that, you know, that that's, that's the mayor. We have a guy, you know, who works with a phone company. We have a, a couple of kids that are in college. It's a, it's a, a broad spectrum of, of great people that go out and again, don't get like last yesterday was a crazy day. We had three calls. We spent probably six hours on the road, patching people up. Uh, you know, it was, it was the craziest non-paying job you'll ever have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that I, I know the community appreciates it. And, uh, you know, it's, if I can only imagine if you're riding in uh, the back of an ambulance with someone trying to comfort them, like you have plenty of tools in your tool belt, uh, you know, to, to offer, to, to try to, you know, comfort them that this could be much worse. Um, yeah. yeah and, and just continue to help people and, you know, like we'll, we'll get through this, whatever it is. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, it, it, that's the best part. Like it is just inter interfacing with, with the patients, making, you know, make here. Sometimes you just have to listen to them. It's just, sometimes you have to talk to people. That's part of the, that's part of the care as well. If they're, if they're okay, they're stable. You know, I've talked to plenty of 90 year olds, 85 year olds, and just to hear their stories. You know, I'm, I'm always interested in their stories. Like you have a story to tell. You've seen that such a transformation in this country during your lifetime. You know, uh, I, I, I talked to one fellow. He was seven years old when, when Pearl Harbor got bombed. You know, he, he remembers it like, like it was yesterday. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and right now, like, really, it's, we're 21, what, 22 years past 9-11. So basically, it's 1963. 1963 was as far away from Pearl Harbor as we are from, from 9-11. Yeah. Uh, so, you, you know, so you, have, you have to respect that generation that went through that because you're going through it again differently and you'd want that respect as well. So I never, never pass up opportunity to talk to someone you know, who, who's lived a good life, a long life. Uh, and I get to do that a lot too with our job. Yes, sir. I said, sir, again. <laughs> That's right. So, so okay. So, I think uh, kind of in closing here, um, one, thank you for doing the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Uh, Great. You know, and and sharing uh, your point of view on things and your experience, right? Um, you, you are a very humble and generous and authentic person. Um, I know there's a, a, a thousand other guys that are, very similar to you and in, in terms of, you know what, I, I did a job. I did the best I could. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate you doing the podcast, no, uh, you. you know, and sharing your story uh, and your experiences and things like that. And, you know, I was saying there's probably a thousand other people out there who has served in, in the same capacity their community, their country, um, you know, whether it's multiple tours or, or volunteering uh, as an EMT or whatever, like those stories exist all over the place. It's not everybody's in the limelight. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but like, you know, the, those, to your point, that, that 90 or hundred year old guy that's standing on the ground watching the plane, like that guy was a badass. He, he was, day, you he know, was. talking, talking about, uh, Pee Wee Martin. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I think you had said it and, and probably somebody else, like we live in the shadow of like giants. 
image um, giants. Yeah, every, yeah. every day you realize that you're you're just in a shadow. You're in the shadow of someone who's who's great, and they, they don't even know it. You know, and but that's you're right. That's 99 percent of America is like that. that. That's what makes that's what makes countries work. That's what makes communities work. It's thousands and millions of people out there doing the right thing every day. You know, and and maybe not getting the credit for it. You know, it's 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 a mom and dad just being a mom and dad. Even that, if, if you're just a mom and dad, that's it. If, that, if, that, if that's the only job you do, dear God, how important is that? How yeah. important is that? Like, that's a basis of community. That is the basis of civilization is is loving parents. And it starts with that, you know. And uh, so, yeah, no, they're, they're out there. I meet them every day. Uh, I, I know they're out there. So, like, it, it's, it's bad times, but we're not in a bad place. We're, we're always in a good place. It's just bad times. Yeah, so, a lot of uh, a lot of first world problems. A lot, lot of first world problems. A lot of first world problems, and uh, you know, it's we get over that. While <laughs> while people are in the in the thick of it or in the muck of it or whatever, you know, sometimes it, it could be hard to identify that we're in a first world. That you know, whatever's going on in your life, sure, yeah, this is a first world problem. Like, right? Pause. Look around. Yeah. All right, make a decision, move that direction. Yeah. And, and, and that's a large part of why I started um, interviewing people on the podcast and having people come on because, you know, uh, m- much like you were, you were alluding to earlier, right? The country is full of rock star people. Yeah. Okay. Now, as you are aware, I've, I've had some pretty significant people in the veteran community um, on the podcast or coming on the podcast in, in the coming weeks. Um, and anybody that's listening, like, you know, there's, there's also people who are just the av- average person who are just trying to be a good part of their community. And I think my personal opinion, like, yes, those people exist, are they all over social media and, and posting about it on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever? Like maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But if there's more people stepping up to be, you know, coaches, um, EMTs, uh, willing, willing to, you know, serve food at the community center or go volunteer or donate, you know, to the food bank or a nonprofit, like that's what's great about this country. We're able to do those things. Yeah. And I want to share those. And that's the stories I want to share. You, you're a great example of someone who does that. No, I I was just, again, I I was, I I think I said this when when I retired is I owe debt to America and that debt will never be paid. Like it it won't. It's just, I'm in the red with America for, for, for my entire life. Uh, And so is every other American because like yourself, having been around the world, seeing what what we saw and, and where people live, I know I'm in the greatest country in the world how you know populated by the greatest people in the world and and i i owe them everything so that's uh, that makes that makes the choices pretty simple once you look at it that way yeah and uh you know guys guys like you guys like me and others that have come on the podcast or will in the future like just got to keep keep sharing those stories and and saying those people's names so uh you know they they kind of live forever and the lessons learned you know, are, are learned and, and kept, right? Cause like, like I was joking about earlier with, with the books, uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> with the black, yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. 
if the world goes if, if the world goes full blown communism, like we're gonna need the books to course correct, or we're gonna need to burn them. Just right, to, right. And, uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Let's so, let's let's stick to the first one. Course correct always. <laughs> first option is your your first course of action is always your best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Tommy. Do you do you have any closing thoughts? You know, um, like I said, we're, we're we're things are bad now, but things were really bad in 1861 and 1862. You know, in 1863, uh, down at Gettysburg, like that that was a bad time in America. We were literally killing each other by the thousands. Um, we're we're not there, right? We're, we're it's a it's a rough patch, right? We're, we're going through some rough times, but you know, never forget that. That what 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 brings us together is is you know faith in your country, faith in your family, faith in God, and uh, it, it's not it's not that bad. Don't 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 let the, the naysayers tell you how bad it really is. Um, you know we 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 are a country of good people, founded on, on good principles that have corrected a lot of things uh, in our past uh, on our own, which is a great thing to do. So um and it it, it was a it's it's a country worth serving, and I had the honor of doing that. And that's going to be, you know, I, I had the best bosses in the world. And the bosses, my true boss was the American, the American you know, citizen. And I could not have worked for a better person because uh, I know who they are. And, and they're, they're people worth fighting for. Amen to that. Amen. You know, the, 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 <laughs> amen to that. That's the only <laughs> response I can come back with, you know, uh, God, country, family. Amen. That's like, it. That's good, Kevin. So, that, I mean, we could have summed up two hours. Yeah. <laughs> right there and there. Yeah, sorry. sorry. I kept you going. Yeah. All right. So, Tommy, tell me a little bit about what you think. God, country, <laughs> family, amen. Call it good. And we're out. And, and cut. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, again, I appreciate your time. Uh, most certainly, we'll stay in touch. Um, yeah, man, that's a, that's all I got for now. Hey, bro, appreciate that, man. God bless. Good, good luck, in the, good luck in the future to the your family and the job. You, you're going to do well, no doubt. I, I have no doubt in that. Much appreciated. No problem, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, Tommy, I'm out. Take care. Have a good one. God bless. <laughs>